Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, once again to uh, Grime and Games Grimecast. Long time no talk. It's been about two months. It has. Uh, as always, I'm Nutchucks. And with Nutchucks, we realize that the winter is long and hard and we're all going to die. It's browbeat. Indeed. Uh, so, like I said, it's been about two months since the last time we've uh, done this, and terribly sorry to all of our fans who've been watching, uh, or listening, because I forget that we're on uh, Spotify now. Uh, we have been, uh, well, I've been really busy with uh, work and life and everything, so I have not had a chance to come back and sit down and have a good topic of conversation with Brow here and record anything. With that being said, uh, Brow, what have you been up to for the about the last two months? Uh, I have discovered that, in fact, seasonal affect disorder is quite real, and it's one more perk that I unlocked by living long enough. So, in addition to all the struggles life has to offer, getting out of bed is now a real one. Oh, shit. That's fantastic. But otherwise, when I am around, I have been improving my abilities as a cook. Uh, apparently now I can do a steak that rivals my wife's, which is a pretty high bar to hit. Not bragging, still just developing, because we're, we're learning here. Once I get a knack for something, watch out, but it's going to be a tough road ahead. And uh, pursuing various series I'd like to talk to Chucks about, because normally I am not a TV-slash-series guy, and I've had a few things that I've perused recently. We have to do a little bit of catch-up. Maybe Chucks has seen them, maybe he hasn't. Well, let's, and... let's, let's talk about what? what have you seen? What, are you, you're just going to leave yourself out of this? Fine. It's it's the browbeat hour. Fuck Chucks. No, no, We're no. Fuck. That's what I'm kind of curious about. I, what, what have you seen? We'll get to me in a second. In a second, he says. Does he not know me, this guy? Okay. Yeah. Uh, in in the time between our our interim that we have not been speaking to one another, I have both had the chance to watch the Netflix live-action adaptation of Cowboy Bebop, and quite recently, like two days ago on the 11th of December, read the official notice that Netflix is canceling season two of Cowboy Bebop, the live-action adaptation, off Netflix. Which should indicate certain things about what I saw, but I wanted to ask Nutchucks if he had any awareness of the source material and or this new adaptation. Uh, I have watched both. Uh, the new adaptation with John Cho, uh, what is it, Makir? Oh, I can't remember the guy's name. The guy who played Jet. and uh, Mustafa Shakir. Mustafa Shakir, thank you. Um, and I think her name is Danielle Panea. Panea? Panea? Uh, you got it the first time. Yep. Uh, <clears throat> so I watched it. Uh, it is utter garbage. I do not like the adaptation that they did for this. They tried to add way too much exposition to the story by making them longer. The stories were good. Uh, they should have done their own thing with it instead of trying to be like, we're going to take the first episode. No, they, they they did do their own thing. Well, okay, let me... I, don't, I mean their own stories instead of taking... They did do their own stories. <laughs> oh, God, no. But they kept taking things from it, and it wasn't right. Like, everything they did with it was just terrible. Like, I couldn't stand any episode. Like, all of them were too long. They added too much exposition that sometimes it had nothing to do with anything. And it just made me so infuriating, infuriated watching this. And I was just like, this is utter garbage. Like, it's terrible. Like, no one should be forced to watch this or have to watch this anymore. It should be taken off Netflix. It was that bad to me. But it's an original. If Torchwood stays, this stays. Well, Torchwood's not bad, though. 
I'm not really big into were werewolves and vampires. Okay, do you have any more emotional pop-offs with zero specifics, just broadly speaking? Meh! Uh, God, this is the one time I... I, I, I think what I've seen with Netflix and their adaptations of anime shows and movies, uh, they just need to stop because they have three more in the works, and the two, three that I've seen that are coming up are going to be terrible because uh, you, I don't think you really can adapt them to a uh, TV show very well, minus one. Um, and this proves it, that they have no clue what they're doing with adapting anime, and they need to stop. Just There's a, just stop. There are a couple of issues in terms of translation, and they stem a from a language translation, as in not just what words are being said, but how cultures express certain things compounded with a medium translation going from animation to live action. That's a that's a compounded problem. It is possible. It's challenging. But it can be done. Uh, any more gripes before I begin to dissect things? Uh, yeah, they butchered all the characters. Minus uh, Jet. That's it. Oh, they, they, they did Jet some dirty too. It's some, okay. Somewhat, yes. Let, let's start with some of the fundamentals. A lot... A lot of the problems with this adaptation stem from the direction of writing, which is scripting, the spoken lines, episode structure, character motivations, and individual plot lines. One of the biggest downfalls is that the episodes of the live-action Cowboy Bebop adaptation are effectively sequential. Episodes lead into each other. The original show is 26 episodes long, and they're basically 25 minutes each. The Netflix show is 10 episodes long, being 45 minutes to an hour each. The net runtime of the episodes is roughly the same, plus or minus. So the live action spends about as long being on screen as the animation does. The complexity here is that you have fewer chances to be varied. Since Bebop had an episode here and there, the anime did, that were similar, but most of them were going after bounties, and bounties create variety. They create a, if you want, monster of the week sort of situation. Yeah, the crew doesn't get paid very often. Yeah, they usually learn something along the way. Occasionally they succeed and piss away most of their winnings, however they can. There were five canon episodes in the anime in terms of being about Spike. But arguably, it was about the bounties. The Netflix live-action adaptation of Cowboy Bebop is firmly about Vicious and Julia, which is their way of saying, let's take these characters who were in the show for about 10 minutes originally, let's dedicate a significant amount of time, as in half the runtime of the show, basically, to them. Let's give them fleshing out and backstories. And I knew that this would be a problem, I didn't know quite quite how bad until the end, because again, I, I, I forced myself to keep watching through, taking creative notes like I do. Like, human beings just go, this sucks, and change the channel. I go, ooh, hoo, hoo. let me figure out the granularity of this shit sandwich. Uh, I knew the show was in trouble when Jet Black, early on, expresses that he has a daughter. In the animagic plot, Jet Black did not have a daughter. So immediately I thought, what is the purpose of writing a daughter in for this character? I gotcha. She's going to be in jeopardy at some moment. Either he will break 
her heart by disappointing her because he's a bounty head, Jet Black is, or she's going to be kidnapped. Spoilers, both things happen. But a galling element of the writers, quote, doing their own thing, going back on their previous pitch when they were advertising the show, which is a lesson, kids, don't believe advertisers. It was advertised as, we're doing our own thing. So the two flavors of doing their own thing is mixing and matching episode content in the live-action show, as in slapping together two anime episodes, crudely, or writing original storylines. For example, the ninth episode out of ten in Cowboy Bebop live-action is a backstory episode for Spike and Vicious. For comparison's sakes, the backstory of Spike and Vicious in the anime is either spoken about for maybe five minutes during the entire show, and you get one brief flashback of them doing a gunfight back-to-back, implying that they were either working for the syndicate or just being toughs on the street. Everything else is inference. Here, we get a buddy cop sort of episode where Vicious is written in as being a, a prince, if you will, within the underworld, who has a responsibility to take over someday and not be a big whiny crybaby while being mean and cruel about it. And Spike is his lifelong adopted friend who came into the family and is reliable and is brave and courageous. And by the way, has a gangland name and his name is Fearless. This is all new for the show. Fearless. Wow, it's so cool. Vicious and Fearless, the unstoppable duo. Wait, the fuck's your name over there? Virtuous? Oh, you're doing a theme thing. As if every character in the syndicate that has a name has like a kanji for a name and the kanji means something. I want to meet Hungry. I wonder what Hungry's like. Anyway, what the writers choose to focus on is virtually incompatible with the anime series. If it were reskinned to something else, this might have been a run-of-the-mill average show. But of course, we compare the new product with the original. Chucks, you mentioned that the characters got done dirty. A lot of fans were complaining that John Cho, the actor who portrayed Spike Spiegel, is too old to be Spike Spiegel. Well, here's where I lead the discussion. Uh, Spike in the anime is written to be 27-ish, but he's got an attitude of a much older person. Not quite a burnout, not quite a, a boomer, but somebody who, despite their youthfulness, just has a very damaged perspective of the world, so they have leaned all the way into Taoism as far as they can take it. Whatever happens, happens, that kind of deal. They have some sagely wisdom, but they're mostly faking it because they just want to avoid trying to think about their past. Having John Cho be a guy who's almost 50, that the swagger fits. I don't care that you think he needs to be young. The attitude fits the portrayal. The portrayal is, yeah, I know, gunfights and kung fu, but I'm kind of over it, you know. Still, Spike Spiegel's character, despite being less funny and more grumpy, mostly maintained. Jet Black's character uh, is cast as a black man. The anime character in the West was voiced by a black man. I think Mustafa Shakir does a fantastic job portraying that character because he just clicks with the body language, the tone, uh, the various comedy beats, and the griping. Yeah, you know, that's, that's, I don't mind the recast. Cool. You're doing the character justice. Regrettably, Daniela Pineda, who was portraying Faye Valentine, was given very edgy dialogue to say. And Daniela, as an actor, seems capable in the TV world. And she delivered the lines that were given to her to say. But 
the words that were offered for the actor to say were mostly bukkake jokes, uh, 14-year-old swearing, and queer baiting. So the, the actor wanted to get paid. I, I understand this. That does not a good character turn make. Uh, Chucks, what would you, if you remember the, the anime at all, what was Faye's primary motivation for doing anything in the anime? Money. Specifically why? Oh, man. Specifically why? Uh, Where did she... all of her money go? She has debts. She had debt piled on her by that, uh, what's his name? Whitney Haggis Matsumoto. Mm -hmm. Yes. yes. Thank you. But that's not why. Then tell me, sir. She had a gambling addiction. Oh, that's right. Kind of constantly, every payday. Yeah, put a little towards the debts or just run away and go gamble. Faye, this, these are, uh, Jeff Thu said it better, Mother's Basement. Uh, Faye is lazy. Faye is grifting in the most effort economical way possible. Yes, Faye was drawn to be sexy, but you can be passively sexy and do nothing, which worked for Faye just fine. Faye only decided to pursue bounty hunting as an install grift once she associated herself by accident with Jet and uh, Spike. The very first episode of the animated series takes place on this place called Tijuana, which is where the show also takes place. But the opening of the live-action show is lifted virtually wholesale from the Cowboy Bebop animated film. Except for in the animated film, the hostage situation in the opening was at a convenience store. Whereas in the live-action show, that same scene takes place in a space casino. It takes place in a space casino because... That was the third episode of the animated show where the gang met Faye. So Faye gets to show up in the first episode of the live-action show. Yes, this is confusing, but the question also arises. Why do you need to clamp together three episodes or two episodes in a movie opening in one, in one live-action episode? Why would you need to do that? Oh, because you have fewer episodes with longer runtime. So now we're going to pile shit together. I'm not going to dig super heavy into every piece of the show. But since, Chucks, you offered me the floor, let's, let's fucking go. The character of Vicious is given to an actor who apparently whose entire screen direction was make your eyes bug out and look angrier. Yeah, that, I didn't... I, I don't blame the actor, I blame the direction and the writing. Because they, the writers decided we need to give Vicious front center stage. As many episodes as possible, put him in there and have him do banal, mean kid shit. Bully shit. And make sure, in the show he's got a katana, but make sure he uses it a couple of times. We need to have a, a Star Wars uh, right... Oh, that's Skywalker. Doesn't matter. We need to have a big throne room fight. For reasons. Uh, and, and of course, they, they wrote in more words and more events, and none of them land. Even though I really appreciate... Mr. I think it's John Noble, I think. Uh, Denethor from... Lord of the Rings. Nice to see the actor. Shame that he doesn't have much to do here. So Vicious is on the screen all the time. And he has to be a big sulky baby who's going to betray the syndicate and seize power from the throne from his father. By the way, fun note. Uh, the throne room of the three elders of the syndicate council, apparently. It's people sitting in weird frog face masks. 
And the reason they're weird frog face masks is because in the anime, there were three super old stylized Chinese men with big, like, eye flaps, if you like. And so the show creators thought, well, that's kind of racist, right? We can't have three super ancient Chinese people with weird faces. Let's just cast those super weird old Chinese faces and put them on other people, probably white people. Silly choices for the sake of politics. So Julia is the other part of this equation that's a problem. Because Julia was a competent but mysterious woman in the show, who clearly Spike had a softness for. That's one of his main motivating factors. But now, in the live-action show, she is a beautiful, aspiring young woman who works at a nightclub, question mark? It's, it's, it's a combination between a social hangout with sexy overtones and a classy jazz bar. Hard to say. But this character catches the eye of both Spike and Vicious in their flashback, which is why Julia is now married to Vicious, which doesn't make a lot of difference. And he's a terrible spouse, and she's a, a wet blanket. But then the, the mystique of the show, uh, supposedly Game of Thrones style, is that Julia begins to have aspirations to run the throne. So when her husband uh, blurts out all of his plans to Julia about, I'm going to betray them all, Julia thinks, you know, I bet you I can out-betray you. Let's go with that. And again, spoilers to a terrible show. There's an iconic showdown between Spike and Vicious because that happened once in an anime, I heard. and. Vicious gets the upper hand in that fight, because the audience is left to expect, are you going to go beat for beat with what the anime did, or are you going to go your own way? The answer is your own way, because Spike gets to parry a sword with a chair left behind in a church, and the chair breaks apart into two tonfas, uh, baton weapons, if you know what that is. And then Spike throws away a baton, and then sort of fights with the other one for a bit, until he knocks the sword out of Vicious's hands. Well, he doesn't do that. No, I'm sorry. Uh, in the middle of the boys' duel, the background plot of girl power uh, reaches its zenith, and then Julia shoots her husband, Vicious. Not fatally, just enough to take him out of the fight. Somewhere in the chest area, you know, I don't know how that works, but there's a bullet in her husband, and then her former lover, Spike, gets to say, come away with me. And the writers, I know they felt really clever at this point, come away with you. What about what I want? What about my dream? I can have the throne. And you can be my boy toy. Didn't say those words, but that's what she meant. And Spike tiredly says, I just want to come away with you. Let this be over. And then Julia shoots Spike, and he falls out of that church window, like in that cartoon I saw once, uh, and survives a nebulously tall fall while thinking my whole life is over. The entire last episode sequence is an enormous downer because it feels deliberately mean. <laughs> in this fight, I know we're jumping around, I know, but let me just portray this moment. In the big climax showdown, Jet's daughter gets kidnapped by the syndicate because the whole reason for the daughter to be there is to be disappointed in her dad. And then, in this world of high technology, uh, Jet finds out about Spike's evil past as a criminal man and throws a shit fit and throws him in the trunk of his car after threatening to kill Spike. And then these dudes plan a super secret double cross where Jet will deliver Spike to Vicious to save his daughter, except, aha, they're going to shoot their way out of the problem. And everyone in that scene on the good guy's side forgot that hollow projections exist in this world. Even though, in the middle of the show, there was a funny gag, admittedly a pretty funny gag, where Jet has to be there for his daughter's recital at her school, and he has to video call in there with a hollow projection, 
to be part of this moment, which is really high-tech stuff, while Spike takes on like 100 mooks. It's a cartoon, basically, in live action. I'll go with it. But uh, the good guys get super cornered. They're captured. Jet's mechanical armor is broken. Uh, they might as well trash a ship. Faye comes in to save the day with her big guns because girl power. And after all of the difficult scenes are resolved, uh, Jet is sitting on the curb while they adopt a family, his divorced wife and her new husband, who used to be Jet's boss as a cop, I guess, get to show up. The daughter screams, Daddy! to the adopted father, runs off into his arms. Everyone looks very disappointed with Jet Black. And they drive away. And then Faye shows up and says... Uh, tough shit, dude, but I'm really excited about my new sexual identity and, and my history and past. I'm going to take off, so bye. And then his former friend Spike shows up, and then Jet, with one arm and busted leg, says, Criminal scum, I hate you. Go away. If I ever see you again, I'll kill you. And then Spike wanders off the other way. And I'm watching this thinking to myself, if this is how you're going to end season one, did you know there's not going to be season two? Because this is dour-ass shit. This is the gang is broken up. No one's coming back. Everyone hates each other. Go fuck yourself. Only to cut to Spike Spiegel sometime later getting trashed in a bar. Stumbling out the back and then falling flat in his face. And the show introduces the fourth cast member, Radical Edward. Terribly oh. cast. <laughs> well, no, I don't think it's terribly cast. It's, it's somebody's first role. And oh, the direction yeah. was, just go do a cutesy, zonky, boinkers anime thing, but in real life. And the effect this has is cosplayer energy at an anime convention. <laughs> it does not translate well to most audiences, much less mainstream audiences. Worse yet to fans. As somebody pointed out in a very gripey podcast as well, Ed's hair in the show is messy. It's not a super big drill hair wig thing. It's just messy-ass hair, much like Spike's. But they decided to saddle the actor with a large, angular orange wig and reflective goggles. Yep. And, and they, they just told her cut loose. Go do the fake voice Spike Spiegel kid talk thing. And on top of all of this, we haven't even discussed some of the problematic characters that they've changed. Uh, Edward's complexion in the show is noticeably darker than most of the other people. Mm-hmm. If you're going to jet black and lean in the black part and cast a black man, if you're, if you're playing on-screen politics, why did you choose a pasty white girl to be Ed? Question mark? Why? <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense. And it's, it's a 30-second performance that sours the entire feeling because it's the, it's the character who's missing from the opening credits the entire time and the show, except for one line of dialogue reference to Ed existing, who says, we gotta go catch the villain from the movie. Come on, Spike, adventures! Never mind that Ed probably knows that Jet and Spike aren't friends, so Spike doesn't have a ship anymore. What? Nothing about this works logically. Oh, and also, in the in the denouement, the conclusion of the story, Julia keeps her husband cucked and locked away in a basement, and she's gonna imply that she's gonna play Russian roulette with him every day until the gun goes off. Because the the syndicate meets in secret so she can be the speaker for the husband who is away mysteriously. It's really juvenile writing. I had a, a difficult time accessing it, but I didn't stop like Chuck's did. This is bullshit. I just kept processing all the pieces that went wrong. I still don't enjoy it, but I don't 
I don't trash all of it. The effort was made. <laughs> I'll say it like Mr. Tex would say it. It's not a sin that the Inner Sphere made an inferior version of a popular clan battle mech. It's a sin that they tried. That's the real mistake. You even put any effort towards this. But you committed, and you came out on top, but you didn't. The actors did everything they were told to do. Chucks, I knew the show was in trouble when I was watching the opening scene, the opening uh, sequence of the show, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a quick shot of, the, of a gun going off in profile. Remember that one? Yeah. Okay. In the anime, it's the same gun over and over, but it's a very slick animation loop, so they show it to you three times to show how cool it is. But in a live-action show, it's the three characters' different guns that they use, and it's bang, bang, bang in sequence. You know what I noticed, Chucks? What? Jet's gun is fake because Jet's hammer never moves. It's a revolver. Spike's semi-automatic weapon fires, and the receiver moves as normal. Phase, being similar, also moves. For Jet's gun, you just see the silhouette of the actor squeeze their hand over where the trigger is, and the gun doesn't tremble, doesn't buck, the hammer does not move, because it's a fake revolver. <laughs> that is the tiniest sign of disaster in this whole thing. I wasn't sure it was real. I watched it a couple of times. That's a fake gun. Oh, dear God. I haven't noticed that. Oh, shit. So let's talk. Let's talk about the um, the bullshit here, as where do you have been? But again, you're on this train. Here we go. Yep. There's a character in both the anime and the live action show called Gren. Oh God, what they did to him was terrible. Well, here, what they did to Pierre Lefou <laughs> was terrible. What they did because to... oh yeah, Pierre Lefou, different character, featured in one episode of Cowboy Bebop the anime, as in live action, featured once. In the anime, Spike and Pierrot crossed paths by complete accident. They weren't really supposed to meet each other, but Spike was in the area where Pierrot was working that night, and the work was offing syndicate thugs. Indiscriminately. Just just offing criminals and or armed personnel. Because Pierrot is a product of a military-grade super soldier concern. And while they managed to train the guy in all kinds of weapons and implement technology that featured bullet-repelling shields, which was pretty cool, and anti-gravity, floating fat man. His mind receded through the treatments, and the, the psyche break made him into a, an angry baby with lethal abilities. So the terror of the episode is Puro and Spike cross paths, they see each other, they do a brief fight, Spike gets his ass kicked, and Puro would have killed him if it weren't for his fear of cats. For convenience's sake. And, uh... I mean, Spike's a loose end now. So Pierrot will keep coming after him. Spike knows he might die, but Spike is very, very zen about it. Slash Taoist. And he goes off to take a fight that he shouldn't. And again, squeaks by on a technicality. But no, the live-action show is not confident enough that you'll understand this. So we are going to reference something like the War on Titan, which we won't actually talk about. And Vicious will uh, break Pierrot free from containment. And Pierrot is now hooked on Red Eye, which is a drug that was in the show and is barely referenced in, I mean, in the anime and barely referenced in the Netflix show. So the ideal is go kill Spike Spiegel and I will give you all of the drugs. 
Okay, flimsy premise, but it could be run with. The problem is, one of Piro's signature visual traits is that at some point along his psychotic journey in the anime, he decided he would want it to be a Victorian fat man. So he's got a frock, ruches, a top hat, and a fully automatic cane gun. Because it's the future, so fuck you. Walking cane, gun, it's awesome. In the live-action show, he scrounges together a trench coat and some uh, weaponry of decent quality. There's grenade launchers and rifles and a machine gun. It's cool stuff. And they have a low-budget showdown in the alleyway where Spike and the gang are there, but they're out of class, so they have to do a a dumpster trick where they have to cross a burning car using a dumpster lid. It's sort of clever. It's low-budget. There's also a shadow kick combo on the wall of a building because we can't film our actors doing actual zero-gravity flips because that would look silly, so let's have their shadows do it instead. And then, since the villain was rebuffed, the show contrives a way to issue a challenge to Spike, that's not important, because I refuse to acknowledge what they did to Ayn. And Pierrot stumbles across an abandoned amusement park, and in that park is a display case that... (laughs) Contains a cl- not a clown, but his signature outfit, if you will, on a mannequin. And on the glass, the title says Ton Poo, which is the name used for him in the anime, Project Ton Poo. Now here's the kicker, Chucks. You probably caught this, but just in case you didn't, Pierrot walks with great fascination towards this display case of the suit inside, knowing this is his destiny in his heart. And he begins to quote Blade Fuck Runner in French. Uh, I did not know that, actually. You did not know that? Okay, it, it gets more insulting, because as he's, as he's talking about, oh, all these moments will be lost like tears and rain in French, I bet the writers felt so fucking clever. It implies he's going to put on the outfit. The very next scene is Jet questioning Spike's background, saying, with your abilities, it means only one thing. You served, right? And then he goes, where were you stationed? Tannhauser Gate? Ah. <sighs> Chucks, you've never seen Blade Runner, right? I have never seen either Blade Runner. Okay. I'm going to spoil something for you. Amazing movie. Watch it anyway. Two different characters in the live-action Cowboy Bebop show said, all these moments will be lost like tears and rain. And the other one said, oh yeah, where were you stationed? Wings uh, off the wings of Orion? Tannhauser Gate? Do you remember the actor Rutger Hauer? Yes. Okay. Rutger Hauer, in Blade Runner, is the leader of a group of replicants who have fled their agreed confinement, their, their assignment, back to Earth to seek out what's happening to them, their whole nature, and how long they have left to live. Because replicants are not self-aware enough to understand that they have finite lifespans. But Rutger Hauer's character uh, is a combat model, because people have to fight each other, but, but why not just send fake people? with a very high degree of intellect. So he's piecing things together very quickly about his own nature and such. Realizing that older memories and feelings are artificial, but it's better than nothing, so they can at least be people much as they can. At this point of the film, we're headed towards a final altercation because Harrison Ford's character really needs to track down Rutger Hauer's character. And Rutger Hauer's character confronted his creator, realized there's no way to extend his lifespan and he's beginning to feel 
that he's going to die pretty soon. Planned obsolescence. So, Rutger Hauer's character and Harrison Ford's character have a scuffle on an abandoned tenement on a rainy night. Because they're all rainy nights. And Harrison Ford's not doing very well. But Rutger gets him out of a tight spot. And then, feeling his demise pending real quick here, squats down, eyes him, and says the following words almost verbatim. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the arm of Orion. I've seen sea beams glitter over Tannhauser Gate. All these moments will be lost like tears in rain. Time to die. And the character dies. And Harrison Ford has to stare at what is an unkillable machine, basically admit that its time is up, and then expire. So you might understand how much it upsets me that a writer ripped off a phrase, split it in two, and gave it to two characters, context-free, to try and enrich their world. Do you get it? Uh, that'd be kind of infuriating. Be yeah, pretty- man. That that being said, please watch Blade Runner at some point. I'd love to talk to you about it because that's a that was a film that came out, didn't do well commercially, and thirty years later people praise it. It's the same critics that panned it said, This is amazing, required viewing. So Bebop's live action show got a lot of issues. We're going back to Gren. Gren in the anime was a war survivor. You could say veteran, that's not fair. Gren made it, barely. But Grimm was captured by a different side. And as a prisoner of war, Grimm, the soldier, uh, was used, experimented upon with various substances and medications. Because fuck it, we've got the capital, there's not really a centralized government, we can do what we want. And in their contrived backstory, Grimm was given drugs that started to affect Grimm's hormones very heavily. So Grimm, person with penis, grew titties and was already slight to begin with, so the the effeminate figure gives you a bit of a hermaphroditic payoff, if you wish. But in the show, in the anime, Grimm was introduced as a a drifter, as somebody who's making their way from town to town and plays a real mean saxophone, lending to the musical identity to the whole show. And then Faye just accidentally runs across Grimm. Grimm's in town because Vicious is in town, because they served together in that war. Vicious made out better than Grimm did. And... Well, basically, Gren feels the Vicious did Gren dirty and would like to get back at Vicious because of the whole red-eye situation. There's a little more to it, not that important. So Gren is a combatant, this hardened warrior who loves saxophone and basically is having a very gender-confusing time because Gren did not necessarily choose to experience increased femininity, but it's happening to Gren anyway. Okay. Okay. How does Netflix's Cowboy Bebop handle the situation? Okay, Gren is gender ambiguous and reads as queer slash trans because Gren is a male appearing person with highly feminine effects and Gren helps run the nightclub where Julia works and acts as the gay best friend. That's mostly the persona is acting arch and fey and friendly 
but also very critical and emotional support. And at one point pulls out two guns for a standoff that goes nowhere. That's the character. There you go. That's 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 sheer tokenism. Ren is there to help Julia on her journey. Her journey being 85% nothing slash spousal abuse and 15% I'm going to take this shit for myself. Yeah. Terrible. The nightclub is run by a woman named Annie who was from Spike's past and Annie apparently had dealings with the syndicate but now runs a convenience store. Nope, not good enough. Annie here is a empowered brown woman who runs the safe haven and hates the syndicate but will totally serve drinks to the syndicate. Who I don't know this man. I want to look him up. The flashback episode, Heavy, the gangster Heavy with the scarred up eye, that actor, uh-huh. that actor did a really good job just being that actor. The, the, the scarred up criminal experienced captain. That was good shit. It's a very narrow role, doesn't save the show, but I appreciated that. The reason I bring him up is that that guy was seen at Annie's as a regular, sitting by himself. Anyway, uh, I think we can largely... No, wait, uh, Jet's ship was not in the show. Spike had his swordfish. Faye had her yellowtail. The hammerhead did not make an appearance because Jet's gun is fake. Just wanted to put that out there. He has a bike in this one. Yeah, they gave him a scooter. Because yeah. budgets. All those cool scenes that happen for combat and stuff, uh, mostly just shootouts in a parking lot because budgets. I... The, the live-action adaptation has moments of, at its best, it reminds you of episodes you already like. Yeah. Did you like the uh, the switch around of Brain Scratch? Because in Brain Scratch, the anime episode, Faye, looking to make a quick buck or escape her responsibilities, gets suckered in by a cult and is lost to them. So Spike, not wanting to stand up for that, goes to find Faye and almost falls prey to the very same thing. Except in this episode, it's just Spike who gets suckered in by a firm pretending to look for a lead that lays down on a VR table, and then his brain is kidnapped by a VR, and he has to suffer an existential Groundhog Day uh, loop where Julia is the attack vector the AI uses to crack into his psyche. But Faye is otherwise unaffected as being a badass out there. The, the the man-hate energy in the show is intense. It is difficult to stomach sometimes, but it's also not sincere because it's just what Netflix is trying to capitalize upon due to sentiment. That's where the dollars are. That's why it's a check box Go ahead, Chuck. I've been talking for a while. No, no, no. I, I, to me, the show felt like, like you said, it has its good moments. It makes you think about certain parts of the series, but when you watch it, it feels like I'm watching a high school play. Like when LeFou gets flown off into space, like the background looks like I'm at a, it's at a high school and you could almost see the strings pulling them up. You're just like, oh my God, this is fucking terrible. Like they didn't think this all the way through. None of the scenery is done really well. The Besides Mustafa Shakir, like I said, I think he did a pretty damn good job, minus a few moments. Everyone else, all their characters to me were just played terribly. Like you said, Grin was done, was shafted in this. Hey, do you know the character's name is Gren? Huh? Do you know why the character is named Gren? No. Grendel. Oh. Do you remember what Grendel is portrayed to be? In Beowulf? Yeah. A giant, scaly monster that eats people. Specifically misshapen. Yeah. The physical form is deeply troubled, 
because it was a pairing that was not meant to be. It's a byproduct of turmoil. Hence, Gren, their body's doing something that's... I mean, they didn't sign up for that. But now that it's happening, I guess I'll make the most of it. But no, 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 no. Don't worry about that. We can we can ride around that. Yeah. Oh, dear God. Well, yeah, no. I, I, I just kept watching and kept getting frustrated. And like you mentioned the end, I, I couldn't tolerate how they did the ending to that. Like, I want to be in power now. Like, by the time... <coughs> Excuse me. Spike and Vicious are fighting in the top of the church. Julia's already been killed in the anime. She got her back of her head blown out. Nope, that is not true. That is not true. If I, I may for was... a second. Or I'm thinking of the wrong, wrong episode. The church, the church thing is a signature moment from the anime that the show pretty much knew they had to borrow. But mm-hmm. if we're not going to do Teddy Bomber any justice, if we're not going to do Ivanov any justice... We can't have a showdown at the top of a skyscraper. That's just not visually distinct enough. So we're going to lift from episode five in the anime. Oh, that's right. That's to replace it with where it would go in episode twenty fuck five in the anime. So we're going to take a middle confrontation, as dramatic as it is, it's not the end of the story, and we're going to press it as the final countdown. Now, are you allowed to have the love interest step in at the right moment and betray everyone? Absolutely. Yes, you can do that. Subterfuge is allowed. Please go do the thing. If a person th- believes they can't meet someone in, in force, then guile will do. I'm not saying you can't do that. But this felt exceedingly cheap because, I'm sorry to do this to you, Chucks. Do you remember uh, Jin and Lin from the anime? Yeah, the, tw- the brothers. Yeah, Shin yeah. and Lin. They were in the show. They were in the Netflix show. Did you notice them? Nope. Okay, so Lynn was the elite female bodyguard to Vicious who was in the backseat with Julia, and Shin was in the front seat. Oh. So, because love and girl power, Lynn asks Julia, hey, do you love him? And Julia says, I guess. And Lynn says, you should be with him. And then strangles her brother. Uh. But it's not... It's not her brother, though. It's not her brother. It's a different character named Shen. Don't worry about that. But these are the characters you're pulling from. The, the, the anime characters are in a live-action show, and you're being a big, you're doing a big drama while not signposting who's who. Just oh, I've seen that face before. So Lin causes the car to flip, which could have possibly killed all of them, and then is too crippled to continue that moment and offers Julia Lin's gun. So then Julia can run off on foot to wherever the fuck the church is. To step in and shoot Vicious during the firefight because that's novel. That's original content. That's that's the writers being brave and different. Are you more upset yet? No, it's uh, I've I've already hit my maximum pissed offness with this show. Okay, let me pivot to something else then. Because hot on the heels of Netflix's original. Cowboy Bebop live-action adaptation. Through Scuttlebutt, I decided to check out Arcane. Great show. You've watched it? Watched all of it. You've watched all of it. How long is the show? Nine episodes. Okay. Interesting. And what is the show based on? League of Legends. Slash Runeterra. They prefer that you call it Runeterra, but they build it as League of Legends. I've uh, never heard of Runeterra, so I know it is League of Legends. What the hell's Runeterra? It's the world that's set in. Ah. Okay, so uh, how much League of Legends do you know? 
Uh, Jack shit. That's all I know is that show. And that is the perfect way to watch that show. Exactly. That is the perfect way. Because, I mean, do you mind if I talk about the show too, since we actually both happen to see it? Uh, before, before, yeah, we can. But give me two seconds. I want to ask you one question. And it's pertaining, to, pertaining to anime. Okay. With Cowboy Bebop being announced a week later, did you hear what was announced by Netflix? No, I did not. They sh- showed the cast of who's playing the live action One Piece. And I want to bang my head into the wall. Oh, it's uh, it's Chris Pratt, right? Yeah, exactly. No, uh, it doesn't look... That's what I'm saying. So they've announced three shows. Uh, they've announced the cast of One Piece. Uh, they're doing Yu Yu Hakusho, which I do not think they'll do justice. And your favorite anime of all times are Gundam. A live which one? A- they're live action Gundam. I think they could pull that like, off because you could just... Gundam UC? Don't know. They just said Gundam. It's just Mobile Suit Gundam is what all they announced. So they could do their own story with Gundam because it's a big universe, and I get it. You can make your own story that way. But with Yu Yu Hakusho, One Piece, and Cowboy Bebop, you already have a set world and set characters. With this, with Gundam, you can kind of just insert your own characters and make your own story slightly and just keep to yes, certain content. Yes, with an asterisk. Yeah. You could do a number of things, but I, I'm not sure they can. Chucks, let me put it this way. Backstepping for a second, there's a signature element within Cowboy Bebop. There's a phrase that's never spoken aloud. It's just the end text of one episode after an event happens of some amount of gravity. And the text says, you're going to carry that weight, which is a fan favorite cosmic statement about a mindset. But they instead have Daniela Pineda say something like, you can't go out there and get yourself killed on a fight that doesn't matter. I'm not going to carry that weight. Which is a perfect demonstration of tone deafness. The writers don't know what they're working with. They watched it. They did the assigned reading. And they picked out the stuff. Whenever they hit something they could identify, they didn't ask, but what does this really mean in context? They think, oh, what can I do with that? Which is comic book writing much of the time. Franchise comic book writing when you have established characters that are 70 years old. Uh, I'm not really that upset that Superman is pansexual in some other world. It's just that you're taking the established template of what a character power type and mindset is and are just leveraging it to your particular needs. Cool. But if you're doing a live action, you're either drawing in new people to like the thing that already exists or you're attracting the fans to your fun stream. Now, how can they screw up One Piece? Easy. No, that's no, no. I'm, I'm looking for <laughs> examples. First of all, Nami's chest isn't big enough. Well, no, the girl who's playing it is a uh, is like 16, so I'm not going to. And she's she has the petite body type, is what it looks like. I don't know. Um, they all look because Luffy and all them are pretty young, minus Zoro and uh, Sanji. Um, okay. But what you're saying is post time skip, uh, Nico Robin is going to be portrayed by Amy Anderson. Uh, she it's actually going to be played by, by Mustafa Shakir. Nice. <laughs> yeah. um, no, you can you can butcher this real easy. I mean, depending on how, if they're doing the same thing they're going to do with uh, Cowboy Bebop and be like, because I know Oda is working with the show. Oda is the guy who uh, wrote One Piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Supposedly Shinichiro Watanabe was working with Netflix on Bebop. That was yeah. one of the headers. And what that actually looked like is somebody ran the script by him, and he glanced at it and said, 
I mean, you're going to do what you're going to do, but I, I hope you might not fuck it up. So yeah, Oda is working with Netflix <laughs> in their adaptation for uh, One Piece. Uh, but, please look forward to Black Clover 2024. Oh, dear God, I hope not. Uh, yeah, that, that would be terrible, too. Um, there's a lot of things they could do. I'm assuming this the boat's going to be CG. It's going to be heavy, heavy. Oh, what boat? Chucks. There's only money for a parking lot. Oh, good point. Yeah. So One Piece is going to be... <laughs> <laughs> gonna be gonna be filmed in front of a live homeless audience on Sunset Boulevard, <laughs> right, <Yeah>. Los Angeles. <laughs> what What's great is it's gonna be a breakout moment because when they do the the fruit powers, one of the homeless will actually pull out some real ass shit, like the hobo hobo no fruit. <laughs> and so, yeah, they got a new star. Uh, like, well, what's your powers? I can throw syringes. Oh shit! It's got hepatitis. We we discovered the last meth bender. <laughs> hey, you okay? I'm great. I'm great. Could you stop hovering, sir? You're blurring in front of the camera. Stop vibrating. <laughs> oh Jesus! Um, they they announced these shows, which honestly I'm a little more optimistic than you are because I already start those shows with disdain. Yu Yu Hakusho is like three great, three pretty good shows stapled together. And One Piece is a alt universe Dragon Ball Z. Yes, that's a, actually Oda based it off of Dragon Ball Z. Well, sure, and that those stories have a place. The thing that they will get wrong, that fans will be upset at, is the power progression or the portrayal of said powers and some specific themes of character relations according to one another. That's what they will attack. And the, tr the the unfortunate part is the audience's eye is drawn to aesthetics and specifics as opposed to any serious theming, narrative, or development or growth. Character growth in a show like this is hitting gear four, not getting over the death of your brother in a tangible way. Yes, I'm referencing Gurren. It's, it's, I understand the kind of entertainment it is. And the mistake that was made by the show it's it's typified in a live action adaptation of The Witcher. People love the shit out of The Witcher show for the most part, and people who love The Witcher games were lukewarm in the show, myself included. Yeah, it looked pretty. We didn't hit a lot of the themes though, not really. Like, I, Chuck's here's another branch for our discussion here. Can you talk to me about the elves in the world of The Witcher? I cannot. You didn't watch the show? I did watch the show, but it's been so long. You mean you didn't immediately get ingrained in your mind? No, because it was like when it first came out. So what was that, a year and a half ago? Well, dude, don't you remember what you see? Not always. You fucking neurotypical. Anyway, the 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 prevailing sentiment of tension between the the people in the world of The Witcher and elves is that the elves came before, and they foraged just fine. But their civilization didn't hit the same stride as humans did. Because humans decided to get industrious and make various alliances. So when the climate changed and humans had mastered crop rotation, the elves were fucked. And then people seized the advantage and drove most of them out. Elves are an endangered fuck species. Yes, there are other planes and places they can go, but not all elves have the same sort of access. And those planes might have a fuck-off spaces-full sort of attitude. So the elves that are left in the common human lands are basically thieves, scavengers, gorillas, and occasional travelers. Not fucking welcome if your ears are pointy. 
and they have also refused to take on human methods because fuck them, you know? We came first. It's our land. So it's a very difficult relationship. Whenever you see an elf character in The Witcher, they're either a hardened resistance fighter of the Scoia'tael, or they're wearing a hood over their face because please don't notice my ears, senpai. That's a tense relationship. And the show, I mean, and this is one example of how uh, cultures rub up against one another in, in the setting that Netflix is not really interested in exploring because we're here for the simple things like, ooh, that man is actually a dragon. So a show like One Piece actually has a better chance of surviving within uh, a Netflix audience. Although the gamble is it's going to be pretty CG heavy because we're here for the cool powers, not anything else. Not and as, as much cleavage as we can sneak into a 16-year-old, this is poli- politely available. Oh, dear God. I'm, yeah, it's, was, it's one thing to be drawn. It's another thing to see an actual human behind it. You're just going to be mm. like, hmm. Oh, it's easy. Just use the Yoko excuse. Yoko? For those of you who don't know, including Chucks, yep. uh, the character of Yoko Littner from Gurren Lagann is drawn wow. either hot or extra hot. But if you look at the official stats in the bio, that character is 15 to 16 years old. But she's still drawn really hot. That creates a certain amount of dissonance among the audience. They go, oh, how do I feel about this? And the official excuse is, well, their world spins slower. So in Earth years, she's like 19. (laughs) Which, Which is... Which... I'm sorry, there's no way to say this otherwise. Which is the same as uh, an animated mommy-son pornographic cartoon uh, (laughs) where the opening line of text is all actors appearing in this film are 18 or or older. Oh, dear God. So it's an 18-year-old, 6-year-old, or whatever the fuck. I'm I'm being, like, broad here, but this is the sort of mental gymnastics that you have to go through when your eyes and electrochemistry go, oh, shit, I'd fuck that! And then your other parts, like your logic and rhetoric, say, uh, legally speaking, you cannot be witnessed expressing those things or you're going into trouble. Oh, oh, okay, okay, okay. Um, what, what legalese do I need to say to make it okay? Say this. Okay, I said that. Good. Please proceed to touch your genitals and excitement at what you just saw. <laughs> oh, dear God. And I'm trying not to be gross here. No, I got you. I, I get what you're getting at. And, uh, um... I don't, I don't think they're going to do it justice. I don't. These, these anthropomorphic, super sexy cartoon foxes are eighteen or older. <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? B stars. <laughs> uh, like what? Actually, the... physical, physically shook with that one. Uh, the hell am I watching? All right, are you ready to talk about arcade? Oh yeah, let's go ahead. I'll, I, I I got the giggles out of me with that one. Okay. Gurren Logan will come back up again in the analysis of Arcane. Uh, I think that the writers of Arcane fucking tricked Netflix. By tricked, what I mean to say is Netflix offered them a check-a-box menu of representation and tokenism that they are putting in their shows, and the writers said, yeah, we'll have all of that in there, because all of that is in there. Um, queer relationships? Yes. Kind of. Strong-ass women? Yes. Kind of. Uh, trendy haircuts. We got those. Absolutely. Uh, men suck? Well, yeah. Yes. 
but they're not completely incompetent. There's a lot of stuff going on here. Uh, Arcane took me by surprise, so much so that I think I watched it over one day and a half. What I did expect, what I did expect, absolutely, was the strong visual presentation of a Dishonored slash Valkyria, Chroni Valkyria Chronicles uh, watercolor by way of CG rendering models. And they delivered consistently. I don't remember anything looking bad in that show. The styling, the geometry of the characters, the architecture, the textures themselves, the movement. And, oh god, those eyes! Those eye movements were so on point! I had a good time with a visual feast of the show. But! Did you know, Chucks, that Arcane Season 1 took six years to make? I did not. Yeah. So it was well received, and the people are saying season two. I, I, I'm, I'm worried. I fear this is going to be a one punch man season one situation where whatever follows the first offering just can't sustain this level of quality. What we have here is a nine episode show that structurally is an inverse Gurren, because in Gurren Lagan, the first two thirds of the show are the foundational story of this world and these characters, and the last third is a time skip and an acceleration. Whereas in Arcane, Colon League of Legends, the first three episodes are the seeds of what we can see for the rest of our time with this world. Then the time skip occurs for the next six episodes. And the quality of the writing, the best way I can say this is that the show is mostly tropes. It's mostly tropes. You've seen all of this shit before, most likely. And that doesn't prevent any of it from feeling satisfying. Because you react to it. If you're rolling your eyes, you're probably meant to. If you're biting your nails, you're probably meant to. If you think, oh shit, I know what's coming up, you're probably meant to. When you're surprised, guess what? Calculated. This is not sophisticated storytelling. Although, I will say, at one point, I paused what I was watching. I turned to my wife, and I said, could they be that clever? It was around episode six, actually. She said, what are you talking about? I said, well, Hextech. Hex, like hexagon, like there's six sides. Yeah. And we're following about six plot lines at the same time. Yeah. And the main character, Violet, has a tattoo on her cheek. Vi, for short. Yeah. Well, Vi is six in Latin. Could they actually be that fucking clever? You yes. probably didn't notice. You probably didn't notice, Chucks. But yes, the answer is they are that clever. I didn't notice. But it's but just, yes, it's it's just it's not just cleverness. It's a visual feast. So, show's good. Uh, we're gonna spoil it because fuck you. You're welcome to go watch it. Me talking about the show does not take anything away from it. I, I, I'm broadcasting that all of the things that happened, the drama, the suspense, the surprise. You could all see this coming. It, it doesn't do a, you had no possible way of knowing, blah, 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 blah. It is there. In the first three episodes, we get to see the characters that ostensibly are going to be somebody one day. Now, Chucks and I, we know very little about League of Legends. So the fans go in saying, ooh, that's that guy, and that's that guy, and that's going to happen here, and I know they're safe because they're people later in the game. We were spared that. We're not biding our time waiting for champions to become the champions that they are. We're watching a story that's told to us. We have economic disparity. 
that there's a very progressive city with big old towers. And then there's the lower regions of that city across the river that we don't talk about because that place sucks. We still depend on one another, but it's not discussed how that happens. The very opening shots of the show are uh, some sort of strife and people losing each other in the gunfire. We are doing the thing where the people in authority have masks and they're therefore aren't people. Uh, dehumanizes them. But the conversation de- develops into the air being pretty bad down in the lower city. So the upper towners have to wear masks to even hang, to even sustain it. But that does play a plot role later on. Uh, we have Violet and we have Powder, two adoptive sisters, under the care of their father figure, Vander, who apparently used to be somebody in the community. Everyone respects Vander, and Vander owns and runs The Last Drop, a popular bar. And we don't really get a good grasp of what's happening up in Upper Town, but we do know that the kids in the ghetto love to go steal. Because it's fun. And they're they want to hit it back at the man, yeah, challenge authority, all that shit. And the kids pull a heist. They break into somewhere posh, and they find some cool, weird uh, tech stuff, and they steal some pretty blue rocks, some of which spill out and cause an explosion that kind of ruins that part of the building. And then they have a scuffle scrap with some other punks in the streets, and they run home. The first episode, you can be forgiven for not being super drawn into because it's, it's mostly Aladdin-style shenanigans with kids with colorful hair. And of the gang, there's the, 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 brooding, the br- brave and brooding leader, Vi, slash Violet, it stands for violence, who's a boxer. Man, she, she's got the scuffle cuffs. She could punch out anybody. She's not afraid from no one, and her daddy can catch a bullet with his bare hand. Then you got the guy with the goggles who is the big, lovable, fat dude, carries stuff and sometimes hits people. And then you got the guy with the Vegeta hair, who mostly complains and raises his eyebrows and sometimes fires off a gun. And there's lovable Powder, who, um... Well, she mostly just fucks up. She mostly just puts together trinkets that don't work. Also, there's the black kid as the lookout. He, he, just, he mostly just watches this thing Echo likes to watch. This first innocuous episode gives you a... A, a visual promise. The show will look this good the whole time. Guess what? It looks that good the whole time. The next episode gives us a follow-up on that particular setup, as well as extra hints that the big evil man, the spindly hawkish figure with the ruined eye, might be a threat later. But we begin to see the flip side of the story, which is what's happening in Upper Town. And we have a beautiful visual sequence of a kid and his mom stranded in the snows somewhere. Some bad shit happened, we don't know. And that character, you don't know this yet as the, the, the audience of the show, but that is perhaps the single simplest and most compelling character motivation I have ever seen in, in, in a fantasy setting. You ready, Chucks? Mm-hmm. We meet Jace, and Jace's character motivation for his whole life is... I saw a wizard once. Nothing really needs to be added to that. Because in their world, while they have technology that we would consider to be pretty sophisticated, magic is a myth. Only the character that unfortunately has to come off as kooky and tottering gets to say, I'm 307 years old! I remember shit you never heard of! Heimendinger. Heimerdinger. Yes. Who... Gets done a little bit dirty, a tiny bit, because, again, he's sort of the Jar Jar 
in behavior to this setting, but the audience is deliberately kept from understanding what's up with Heimerdinger. He's just a kooky establishment. He's the old professor. Oh, I invented fire. Oh, that kind of shit. But just the setup of I saw a wizard once is explained by the mage user that comes across Jason Mother. He transports them from danger to safety in a visual, beautiful sequence. Apparently, that guy's a champion too. I couldn't care less. It's a wizard. And he leaves behind a token for the kid, a rune stone that the wizard tapped into to create the teleportation spell. And that stone is something the kid has carried his whole life, and his obsession is to unlock magic through conventional tech means. Crystals, in this case. Crystals that the kid stole. Also, Jace is a student at the Academy under patronage of limited support. And uh, him working on this magic shit is definitely off the books. So the kids expose Jace and his work as being A, illegal, and B, dangerous. They just fucked up his whole life. <laughs> On a gag, because fuck you, establishment, society, meh. Even though Jace also started from humble beginnings. His mother married into a, uh, a tool-making business. So, he, so Jace is the Howard Hughes of this story. Instead of airplanes, he's looking to make magic. <laughs> Oh, no, but, but it's good shit because it connects sensibly and there's a trial and they say exile this motherfucker but then they say please, please keep him. They say fine, he's, he's banned from the academy but we'll leave him inside the city. And Jace very understandably sees all of his life stripped away from him and he's going to go kill himself. But in the meantime, the patron who's sustained Jace in the academy, Heimerdinger, has an assistant, Victor, who's sickly, we'll probably talk about him later, who looks into the stuff that Jace is going after and he sees Heimerdinger saying, no, 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 not allowed. <laughs> Destroy all this. And the assistant is a pretty, very, very smart kid himself. He sees potential in this. And then happens to catch Jace at Jace's low point and say, how about we try anyway? I mean, yeah, we're fucked if we get caught. We're double fucked. But what if we can make this work? Spoiler, they do get to make it work under some adversity and circumstances, but not, through have, not out, without having to make promises to people to will pressure them into uh, channeling their developments in any direction. Because the question is, what is even the point of trying to get a crystal to do a cool thing? And the answer is solving an energy crisis. How fictional. We don't have that today, right? Right. At the same time, there's tension between, uh, what are they called? The defenders, the protectors, the ACABs. It's one of those. Well, for uh, the... Uh... For which one? Enforce, the enforcers. enforcers is the word. Yeah, yeah. you're talking about the police force, the enforcers? Mm-hmm. It's a complicated story, but of course the show likes to skim it with pretty easy beats uh, because all the <clears throat> all the masked enforcers are big, strong, tough boys with square shoulders and bigger jaws poking out from other masks. Chads, basically. And they're, they're brutish, and they, they, they trample over the people in the low town. Of course, the people down below in the lanes uh, never resist the, the urge to throw a bottle or a brick at the enforcers, so uh, that's weird. It seems like one informs the other. Anyway, Vander is being pressured to <clears throat> give up the names of whoever did the big explosion upstairs. And Vander doesn't want to do that on principle, also because it's you know his kids. And so we get the duality between the cities, duality between the role and humanity, and now we get extra emphasis on Silco, who is my favorite character of this show. 
who is the current opposite of Vander. They share a past. They stand on very different edges of a cliff. And Silco is now making deals with the Enforcers, just like Vander is, but it's frowned upon. But Silco is tempting a, a, a younger constable into taking a bribe and delivering evidence of who the culprits are and where they're hiding to hurt Silco, excuse me, to hurt Vander and advance Silco. It gets confusing with the names, but Silco is very much a product of his environment and is willing to do pretty much anything to accomplish his, his goals. And his goals seem evil for TV's sake, except for they're deeply nationalist because Silco remembers what was lost the last time power changed hands between societies because the, the lower lanes, while mostly a mineral extraction operation, because, you know, the shiny buildings need the deep, dark shit from underneath the earth. It wasn't always this bad. It just got worse because of, um, well, Chucks, you know this very well. Somebody got the mineral rights and someone got shot in the head, didn't they? They did indeed. And I mean, I'm being very detailed in this setup, but the reason is I want to show you the progression of what we're shown in the first 40 minutes of our time in this world, then the next 40 minutes of our time in this world, and the last 40 minutes, which is... Someone's got to give it up to the cops, because if they don't, the cops are coming in in force, and they're just probably going to clean out those ghettos with some shotgun shells. Banner doesn't want to do that. The senior constable doesn't want to do that. They want to. They, they want some. The, the council is demanding a sacrificial lamb. Who's it going to be? Our brave girl Vi says, "I'm going to do it. I volunteer as tribute." And our adoptive dad says. You got heart, kid, and it locks her in a cellar because he's going to turn himself in because it's just the, it's the least bad thing they can do. Enter Shimmer. What is Shimmer? Well, up top, they got blue crystals. Down here, they got pink water. Pink water has been developed to... I mean, I don't want to say crack cocaine, but let's go with that. Uh, excite the populace with specific targeting vectors to be all you can be one blitz at a time. Silco effectively unleashes a super thug, which kills important people on both sides, creating a greater powder keg situation. And kidnaps Vander, because Silco and Vander, episode 3 is very much Silco's intro. You get to understand more of the man. Violet is aware that this is a big problem for her, and she wants to go rescue Dad, takes two of her friends and tells Powder, stay behind, because... I can't lose you. But she does this in, in the wake of understanding that her father might be dead. So Powder is very upset. And Powder is tired of being here, overhearing and being told that she's a complete fuck-up. So she, she gets it in her head that she can really make this work. She's got an idea. She can help her friends. Also, I need to point this out. Episode 1, Powder tries to contribute, and she fails. Episode 2, Powder is shown to be competent, but she tries to do another thing, and it fails. I wonder what's going to happen in episode three. We are driven towards a conflict at an abandoned fish factory, bringing up strong Dishonored vibes, where the crew of kids sneak in, because they're allowed to, it's an ambush, to try and free up their father. Silco appears in an ambush, with his gaggle of thugs, his trusted retainer, and his brand new chemical patsy. And what I like about this is that Silco at this point is, he's a mob boss, right? You see this guy, you think, fuck this guy, he's just going to send all of his goons. 
You get a payoff where Violet, being the boxer of the group, shown to be very proficient at punching things, tells, okay, Fatty, I know he's got a name. Roll with it. Fatty, find us a way out. Rat Boy, pick those cuffs. Me, I'm going to try to hold these people off. Violet's about 16. Maybe. She's up against big boys, but she's got heavy gauntlets that her adoptive dad used to wield. And we get a pretty satisfying punch-out scene on a bridge walkway, a catwalk in the cannery, where Violet's taking hits, but she is holding her own. But it's tiresome. It's kind of the flashbacks to the old boy slash uh, Daredevil Netflix show uh, hallway fight. Character is strong, character is nimble, but fist fights are very draining very quickly. Now, in this moment, I want to signpost that Silco's number one henchwoman wants to step in. Oh, also, she used to be with Vander, this woman. But Vander betrayed her values. She took her heavies and went over to Silco's side. So her loyalty is negotiable, but she seems to believe that Silco's got her interests in mind. Silco does not allow his bodyguard, his new bodyguard, to go in. He says, no, 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 hold off. You stay here. Shimmer Boy, it's your turn to shine. So, Shimmer Boy drugs up, transforms, and shows Vi that she cannot advance. She can't beat him. Too strong. Father breaks free. Vander breaks free. At this point, he's unlocked by Rat Boy. And as all this is going down, there's about to be some holy hell raised. Powder arrives in the scene. And her solution... She was going to use one of the marching symbol clappy monkeys as an improvised explosive device. And she takes three of the crystals, packs two of them in the body of the monkey, and puts a third one in between the symbols so it would crack it open. Pretty clever design for a seven-year-old, i got to say. Very nice. Vi- Vi- I'm sorry, J- uh, Powder. We're not there yet. Powder is very talented. She just has... Uh, she's homeschooled, and it shows. Uh, and not a lot of guidance in life. A lot of temper tantrums as well. I mean, she lost her parents in a gunfight when she was like five. It's hard. So, Powder sends in her little cuddly monkey through a hole in the wall towards the uh, the action happening on a catwalk in a prison cell. Improvised prison cell. Meat locker. And Chucks, for the first time, it works. Powder's thing works. Now, when it works, that means explosions go off. The monkey cracks the crystal, the energy is released. But Chucks, why did the camera show us three different cuts of that explosion? To let you know what the effects were of that explosion on the people around them. I mean, yeah, but why three? I don't know. Because she loaded three crystals inside the monkey. Oh. Hey Chucks, what episode is this? Three. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, you're getting it now, huh? These people are fucking clever. So, catastrophic explosion. Big bad shit goes off. In the resulting aftermath, Silco's bodyguard loses an arm, and Violet loses two friends. They die in the rubble. Powder's unaware, because the blast throws her clear into the river. But Violet is now buried under some rubble, realizing how bad it is and she's watching her adoptive father bring himself to his feet as hard as he can because the danger hasn't passed yet and very angrily 
stomp off to face a superior opponent. The chemically addled henchman. And it's it's a, it's a very tense charge situation because you're not sure who's going to be stronger. And the fight does see Vander get tossed off the ledge after being stabbed by Silco in the back, echoing back their past. But Vander does land into a bunch of broken glass, which does help break the fall. And some of that glass is tied to pink water. And it keeps getting worse. It keeps getting more tense and charged. We don't know what's going to happen. Vander gets in between. The goon is going to attack his adoptive daughter. But now he's kind of transformified. And his old heart can't take the meth the way it used to. So in a last desperate effort, he saves his pink-haired daughter, chucks himself out of the building, utters a few passing words, and expires. Violet, very understandably, is in a state of shock. She's next to a burning building. Her, her dad's dead. Her friends are dead. And Powder comes around the corner saying, I did it, I did it, it worked. Did you see it work? Very tense words are exchanged because both of the characters looking at each other are at a critical stress point in their lives. The, whatever family they had before, that's gone now. And Violet, in a tantrum, abandons Powder because guess what? Powder killed her family directly and indirectly. And Powder is left on her own, screaming and bawling her eyes out because it hasn't settled in yet. We're still at shock, but boy, does it hurt. And around comes the Silco mob, limping, certainly, but they're up. And now Silco has a decision to make. He knows that this girl is Vander's flock. He knows that this blue-haired child could be somebody one day because Vander raised up tough and stiff-minded people who believe certain things. That if this girl is going to get in the way of his plans, he's got to put her down right here, right now. But instead, he tries to engage her and ask her what's happening. And Powder breaks down, leaps into Silco's arms, distraught, looking for any kind of comfort, not to be abandoned again, and says she has no family. And in a very curiously crafted response, Silco puts his arms around her and says, we'll show them. We'll show them all. And you're left to wonder whether he's being cynical or true as the music picks up and the moment is resolved in a way that has me sobbing pretty much every time I see it because all of these tricks and tropes and turns are familiar to me, but they're sequenced and pitched so well that they work. This is when you have a pair of shoes you recognize, but they're worn in just right. And yes, I did spend a lot of time just audibly describing the episodes, but this three-episode proving ground is pretty much the indicator. Are you here to watch the show? Are you here to pursue the story they've written? Or are you just waiting for the part where Jace gets a big dumb blue hammer? Because if you're in the latter crowd, I feel sorry. You are missing out on so much here in terms of accessible but intricately crafted pulpy writing, if that makes sense. When you hit that point, Chucks, what were some of your thoughts and feelings? Uh, so I, I didn't get as emotional as you did, like as you were talking about, but I uh, I realized after that point, like this is actually a pretty decent decent written show, and that it had more, it had a lot of potential, um, and I wanted to see what happened from there. It uh, I I figured something bad was going to happen because I 
so I, I found out about the show because a buddy of mine, I was hanging out with him and he was watching it and he was on episode six and I saw that episode and I'm like, well, I might as well go home and watch this and figure out what's going on. And, uh, he, cause her later on, her name is Jinx and not powder. And I was like, okay, I wonder what happened. And so I started watching. I'm like, you know, even though I know what's going to happen, this is still really well written enough for me to be kept entertained the whole time. And so with the, with the way the character arcs are developing, I, I would like to see what they do with season two with all the characters. Um, I can't remember what the, uh, they're, they're supposed to be bringing back. Oh, God damn it. What's his name? What does he do? The big gauntlet guy. You said his name a couple times and now I'm drawing a brain fart. Well, to call him Vander, but Vander. there's high speculation because of a certain cutaway shot of a certain other secondary character who is important to the show, but is a champion later on. Hey, this whole deal is he he works on people in a, in a biochemical way, so maybe Vander is not dead, and maybe he'll come back as something else. Yeah, he's supposed to be which, com- coming back as which, something else. It becomes less interesting, yeah. unfortunately. But well, let let me. The reason it works so well is because if they're written as people who behave logically, as is logical to them, that don't share value sets, but you can see, I could at least see, how their ambitions track. So that when you might be compelled to yell at a character for doing a certain something, you, you can yell at them, but you can't blame them. Because of course they would do that. That is what's most sensible to them. There's a, a throwaway, like a basically a Full Metal Alchemist moment where Victor, the assistant, is doing research that he really shouldn't be getting into. But then when somebody says, oh, man, well, don't worry about it. We'll try again tomorrow. The implied sentiment in return is, I don't have that many tomorrows left, my dude. It's, it's this or nothing. And then he has a breakthrough in his research just as the assistant who's been crushing on him decides to make her move and say, let's do a date. And she catches him with his pants down, literally and metaphorically, and tries to get involved. And then the ritual succeeds, but she perishes. You can just bounce off of that and go, oh shit. Or, yeah, okay, called it. I chose to linger and process the befores, the currents, and the afters of that exchange. Because that's one of those things that you've been not noticing willfully somebody making advances at you, but now that you caused their demise, that might shake your plans here and there. It's little things like this. It, with with Jinx from being Powder with the time skip, and again, I can't believe they actually landed the time skip so well, Jinx has all the manic pixie, pixie energy that I frequently find to be very irritating or tiresome. Haha, so quirky. The, the, the modern Harley Quinn thing. Oh yeah, I'm like bizarre, but I'm a weapons master and I can pick locks. Also, I'm ultra gymnast, but I'm clearly insane, but I have the script right here in my hand. It's easy for you to write a character that just, it takes me off out of the fun zone. I don't want to see them. I don't want to hear them. Just put it in parentheses. And then so-and-so appeared. However.com, with the portrayal of Jinx, you remember Cowboy Bebop? I do. Remember the phrase I said? You're going to carry that weight? Mm-hmm. Okay. So Jinx by herself in the show annihilates Cowboy Bebop, the live-action adaptation, because we're given insights into Jinx's perception and the portrayal of grief, uh, morbidity, intrusive thoughts, 
and high anxiety are distilled into a highly specific visual form of her friends always being around. The projected phantoms of the people she's killed are there whispering to her. And in some cases, you remember the fucking flare scene? Yeah. Before the time skip, Violet gave Powder a flare saying, if you need me, call me. Uh, no matter where you are, no matter how far, as the song goes. And there's an episode six, and I'm episode six, actually. She, uh, she fires off that flare, and the camera does a gorgeous pan around in a dusky canyon with blue spilling out from the flare. As the camera pans around, her dead friends are back-to-back with Jinx. And just... It's, it's the past made manifest. It's an unresolved altercation, misunderstanding, a divide, a fork in the road. And I don't find it to be trite. If you're using a spyglass to look at someone, you're making conclusions, and then the, the skittering, itching sound goblin comes over your mind, the camera pans over, and your dead friend with his hollow eyes is next to your shoulder, probably saying some mad shit. He's not saying it. You're saying it to yourself. But the externalization of that trauma is portrayed in a visual way that I find to be completely comprehensible. Maybe I'm fucked in the head. I'm not sure. I think everyone per- is, personally. But showing the audience this degree of persistent, scarred psyche that no one's done anything to cure, to do anything positive about, outside of Soko, who basically said, lean into it. Because you might see that as bad advice, but Silk was saying, I'm fucked up, you're fucked up, everyone's fucked up, make the most of it. What makes you different makes you strong. That is also not empty words, because this is a person coming from authority and trauma and compromise. And this entire motives of Parandai is, it's not the best this could be, but it's better than everything else. Roll with it. I thoroughly appreciate that. Very much so. Because this is a character that's written for me to be to, for me to hate them, Jinx is, and yet I feel for her, while accepting that there's going to be some Harley Quinnisms that are there for the crowd, not for me. Uh, any comparable thoughts there, Chucky? Uh, not really. No. Okay. Well, these are very one-sided conversations, but at least you're listening. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, it, it's good for someone. Yeah. I want to gush about the end of episode 7. Go ahead. Do you remember the bridge? I do. Remember the fireflies? Yes. They're not fireflies! Um, specifically, spoilers for the viewers, the showdown between Echo and Jinx. Because Echo grew up. Echo, apparently, through the meta text, is a more recent champion in League. Chucks, what do you suppose Echo's ability set is? Uh, he can manipulate time. Oh, well, what makes you say that? Well, one, I've read his profile. Uh, two, and uh, the clock. The clock is supposed to show that he can manipulate time and aspects where he can reverse and go back and forth. Okay. Did he use that power in the show? No. But did he, though? Not sure. He literally... Not the way that the audience wants to see. Went back in time. What I find to be arresting about this particular standoff is that we have a scenario that you, as a current and soon former police officer, are very familiar with. Mm -hmm. Actor one, who is unarmed, 
or as a melee weapon, has to cross 30 feet to actor 2. It seems easy enough, doesn't it? Except for actor 2 has a ranged weapon. So that's the entire tension, is where do I put myself relative to their ability to fire at me? Okay, we have that established. Both combatants here are seasoned scrappers. They know how to do their specific thing. These current people also share a childhood. Echo and Powder used to run in the same circle, part of the same little clan. So they know one another. Echo has done a thing before with a mask, because he didn't know who it was, where he had a stopwatch. Now, this is just a character flair thing. This is like my signature item or whatever. It's just a clock. It's just a clock. It doesn't do anything. If the show progresses later on, where the characters resemble their champion selves, will there be Hextech associated with the clock? Probably. Doesn't matter right now. Right now, when the two square off against each other at the end of episode 7, Echo produces the clock, the watch, the, the pocket watch, the very large pocket watch that doesn't fit in any pocket, actually. And he sways it rhythmically to the beat of a now personal, really well-favored, possibly like really, really, really liking the song, uh, Dynasties and Dystopias. And they use a 60-second clip of that song to inform the scene. The swaying of the clock, the camera positions itself behind, so it partly obscures Jinx. Until on a swing of the clock, it's not Jinx anymore, it's Powder. When the camera cuts back to Echo, it's Kid Echo. And so, in this particular fight, I know you know where this is going, just go with me here. In this fight, they are returned back to when they were as kids. And the visual style completely changes to this blast of color, character, background, and theme animal going through the motions of how it used to be when Echo had a cardboard sword and Jinx, excuse me, Powder, had a bubble gun. And the charge is portrayed as both adult forms firing and dodging and kid forms firing and charging. And it stops when Powder lands a shot on young Echo, and it splats on his on his sandwich board armor, and she's laughing with joy, and he throws his sword down in a pout. And then the scene snaps back to where we were left off, and Echo executes his charge, the music completely cut. It's just the sound of footsteps, flips, and hard packing sounds as, as fist and pipe meets flesh. So you're given this brief, musically accompanied wild riot, if you will, of a whimsical combat scene. And then it just brutally cuts to dash, pow, flip, smack, punch, punch. Probably going to beat this person to death right here on this bridge. It was great to reminisce, but you got to go down. And then, wait a second, humanity kicks back in where Echo has to ask himself, am I really going to kill my childhood friend right now? We're on very opposite ends. This person needs to be stopped, but damn it, I still feel something. And Jinx recognizes that. Not seeing anything. It's just, it's, it's wordless expression play for about six seconds. Her face is bloodied. She understands that he's won. But in this moment, she acknowledges, yeah, I remember you too. And then let's go of an explosive device she's been holding on to 
which goes off next, next to both of them. Now, because this is a show, and because this is episode 7, and not episode 9, of course these characters survive. But taken as an abstraction, taken as that moment, I haven't seen anything that good on its own in quite some time. I am abuzz with that 60-second slash 80-second thing. I've watched that scene multiple times. It is as close to perfect as I can think of for what it accomplishes while exchanging zero fucking words. Zero words are said. The music speaks. The characters don't talk. Chucks, it's, it's, it's incredible. This thing sells the show on its own, even though the show never gets that good again, except for the end of episode nine. Yes. Uh, no, I agree wholeheartedly. That that scene where uh, Echo and Jinx fight each other, um, like you said, the music speaks for without with, with the uh, dialogue. There not being any dialogue, the music no, speaks you, for what happens. Did you catch any of the words? I did not. Okay. Well, because I'm an obsessive motherfucker, let me briefly say that I'm going to use this word because I like it. That's it, it's a it's a hymn of the lowborn. Basically, it says it says we in the song. But the entire point is it's people who are scrabbling from the bottom looking up, surviving in the shadows of skyscrapers. The legacy of the poor. We clever, we smart, we don't need your shit. We can do it our own way. Right? Both of the characters in this fight come from that same place. Both of them have known nothing but misery and altercation. So them being at opposite odds is extra heartbreaking because this song speaks to both of their high energy and capacity, and they should be on the same side, except they don't get to be. Sorry, go back to your thing. Oh, no, you're good. Um, I believe the music was done by Imagine Dragons. I think that's who did the music for the series. One track. One track? Okay. Misery. Everyone else. Everyone else is different artists. Okay, yeah, well, I wasn't 100% sure. Um, that, that album is solid. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. Um, but I like you said, the, the fight scene, how it keeps flashing back to them as kids... Then cutting back to them fighting, then them as kids again, and then it just keeps playing back and forth to realize that time has changed, and now they're on two different sides of each other, and that times have changed a lot, and Echo is going to have to fight his friend this time for real, and to try to stop her because of what Silco's doing. And because they've been friends, he knows how she shoots. Yep. So he didn't use his stupid bullshit magic watch, but he went back in time anyway, and that's what gave him the edge. So he got to use the power without using the power because some memory works. Yeah. Wah! Chef's fucking kiss, bitches. Yeah, okay. I I, I mean, talking about this makes me want to watch that scene right now, so we have to move <laughs> off of that scene. Okay. Um, I, I will just say the second to last thing that happens in episode nine, the last episode of this season, and hopefully the rest of the show. Hopefully there's no more show. This is done. Done. No more story. Um... I didn't like the dinner party scene. At really? the same time, at the same time, there is no. There's like three ways to resolve that narrative arc of of Jinx, and this is one of the better ones you can do it. I just I think it's a little cheap. It's an Alice in Wonderland callback, if you will. But okay, okay, I grant it. I grant it because it's not my favorite, but it does what it needs to do so well that the scene after that has me in pieces. Because the show cheats by having Sting write a piece of music for the show. 
And the song What Could Have Been is written by a man who's spent, I don't know, 40 years as a musician writing things that touch the heart, using simple language that still conveys complex feelings. And uh, again, spoiler if you care, and I'll still leave plenty to the imagination, (laughs) but there's something that Silco needed Jinx to build for him, something that was going to be a game changer. If you know the game, you recognize that this thing is one of the signature items that Jinx has in her arsenal. After the dinner party scene resolves, Jinx is in a very vulnerable mental state. And so she goes to retrieve the object that she is was making at Silco's request. And this object appears, appears to be a Merv launcher. It's a man-portable explosive launcher that is called Fishbones because it has the head of a fish. And she points this launcher high up at Piltover, the big pretty city, and she pulls the firing spoon. Now, Chucks, that scene with the music and along with what's happening at Piltover is pretty charged to begin with. Okay? Yeah. There's a detail I overlooked in that scene that I read about in the comments that very much rendered me nonverbal and sobbing. I'm getting misty now. Are you ready for this detail? Yes. Fishbones has a shark face, right? Correct. Okay. Fishbones, the weapon, is a fucked up left eye. Okay. So that's no connection there? Silco. That's right. She made it for him. Yep. Didn't have to. Silco loved him some fish monsters, too. I don't think he's. I don't think he said make it into a fish. I think she made it for daddy. Well, probably. I would have to agree with that. She probably did. He wanted her to build it, and she wanted him to have it. But unfortunately, he uh, he did. Well, I wasn't gonna say that part. So once again, it would appear that nowhere near the same emotional resonance was met on your end. That's okay. You're allowed to. Uh, maybe you're more guarded because of your inclinations to work. Maybe I'm just a, a sensitive freak. I don't know. I used to think of myself as being very emotionally closed off. Last couple of years have shown me very different. It's just some things I've refused to engage with as a self-preservation measure. Still, uh, that just means that you get to enjoy a nice, well-adjusted path throughout. Anyway, that particular... The way they resolve the season, because no, they don't tie everything up and they don't need to. They know that. But the narrative beats they were thinking of get closed off in a way that I think is extremely effective. There are things you can poke holes in as far as character motivation or progression. There's little things I truly appreciate as foreshadowing, such as when Heimerdinger, who now wanders the streets, uh, an urchin hands him a couple of washers and a bolt, and then Heimerdinger does a sleight of hand trick to appease the child, and he produces a spinning top, perfectly balanced and techified. Suggesting Heimerdinger is sitting on a wealth of power and knowledge that he just can't afford to let anyone know he has, because that's going to pose more questions and possibly destroy everything. And this is the problem. The problem with the show is it has gifted us with a nine-episode season, which is odd, usually aimed for ten or around number, and it works well in triads. And it is, I believe that it took six years to make because this thing is dripping with quality. I adore it. But my least favorite parts of the show, if I'm being honest, 
is when Violet and Jace go down to the mines and put on their big fuck-off Hextech weapons and start wrecking house. Is it cool to watch? Yeah, sure, it's cool. But the closer the show resembles the source material, the less interested I get. We haven't even man- mentioned Caitlin, who is an involved character in the show and is a foil, foil to Violet, <clears throat> who apparently is a departure of her design from the game. I don't care about that. I care about the character and how it fits in the world. Mel, the councilwoman, who apparently is going to be a game thing now because of popularity, has a, a big Sparta mom who has some other political pressures from a different kingdom. And you could argue that Sparta mom coming to visit and then finding a local twink and having a, uh, a sexy time vacation is a little bit silly. At the same time, it shows the duality of somebody who is a civil leader. Despot, actually, probably. Who has no qualms about shedding blood and getting her way, but knows how to indulge in nice things, too. And of course, no body modesty. I appreciate that. I like that. I don't know how the average audience sees these things. Um, I'm not sure. I, I understood that they were trying to get plot point for uh, Mel, and that's why they brought her in to try to develop her character. Um, I didn't mind the character of her mom. Uh, I just want to see what happens from here and what she does. Because I'm pretty sure she's going to play a significant part in uh, season two. I mean, to me, it was telegraphed early on that Mel is going to do everything possible to fuck over Jace. Oh, yeah. No, that that but, is clear. But then involved feelings, budding relationship, conflicting loyalties. Again, this is this is very accessible writing. There's nothing groundbreaking here. None of this. This is This is pulpy shit. But I admire it. Because this is pulpy shit that doesn't pretend to be elevated. It doesn't pretend to be anything outside of the familiar. It just knows how to pace itself, what to show, what to conceal, and how to run a very good script. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, it does nothing to over-exaggerate and say, hey, like, look how good the writing is. It just does it and says, oh, this is what we got, and this is what we're doing. Well, again, there's some things it doesn't say. Um, I, I I don't know the game, so it wasn't apparent to me that the chemist is singed until the show singes him, and he's gone until he's not gone, because he's not tied into Victor and Silco. And he's uh, fulfills a mysterious role. We'll see where it goes. There's every now and then there's a certain degree of up their own assness of a character that I tolerate because they're they know when to not go all the way in. Uh, their nose is well within the rectum, but at least the chin is still clear of the mud. So with, with that being said, I guess, thorough recommendations for Arcane. Uh, people, a lot of people have seen it. Uh, the degree of, oh my god, the show that I heard from various channels was a little suspicious. But I'm pleased that I was able to find plenty to enjoy outside of pandering and payoff. Uh, are there tough girl brawl fights in a bar? At least two. Do they look good? Yes. Are they funny? Yes. Do, do people take more damage than they ought to? Yeah, unfortunately so. But at the same time, we're not quite at Final Fantasy avid children levels. So I'm alright with that. Guns actually hurt when they're fired. <sighs> and of course, uh, pretty good Bloodborne vibes. So ups for Bloodborne. Alright, let's get off of Arcane. Please don't make any more. I know the Season 2 is hot greenlit. God damn it. Yeah, it was greenlit uh, like three days after it came out. 
apparently people liked it. But again, yeah. six years to make season one. If they rush two, unless it's something, or if, unless the script is prepared, like they knew there's more show already, now it's time to render, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, I don't think it'd be as good. We'll see. Chucks. Yes. Last time we spoke, did I tell you that my wife convinced me to start watching Avatar: The Last Airbender? No, it's a great show, though, isn't it? No. What? Get out of here. I, People well, love the show. I love People Avatar. love this show. They love it so much. They go, oh my god, this is the best! Ah! I had to struggle for the entirety of book one. Really? Yeah, because book one is for kids. Yeah. it's People love the show, but if they say this is the best show and the whole show is book one, I'm worried about the average IQ of its populace, the Nickelodeon kids. Uh, book two and book three get better. It's- well, hang on. Hang on. I, I know this. I know this now. We're, we're about seven episodes into book two. That's it? Because we're watching it a little bit at a time. Gotcha. About three episode chunks. Gotcha. Book one was basically insufferable because you're placing enormous power in the hands of a child. And you have these thoroughly idealistic notions of one kid can save the world because kid has access to thousands of lifetimes of babbity gobbity babbity boo and then <clears throat> they say shit like, the Fire Nation has been at war with the world for a hundred years. No, that's not how that works. If you have a culture that has a, well, a, a fossil fuel propelled navy, as in they have steel ships that float, it's over. The w- world domination. Dynasty. Well, they have earthbenders that... N- no, you're not, you're not hearing me. <laughs> They have manufacturing capacity beyond your wildest dreams. They will win by year four. Well, no, Solzin can't... Fuck off. <laughs> the climax of book one is Admiral Zhao, portrayed by... I forget his name, but he's... Uh, Jason Isaacs. Jason Isaacs, great British actor. Yep. Uh, Admiral Zhao, in the pursuit of the, air, the, the, the Avatar, going to sail into the northern capital of the waterbending tribe at a full moon. Because he has a plan. That degree of hubris suggests soul nepotism. When you're a kid, you don't think about these things. You just go, wow, Zing Zang Zoom, they've got armored APCs that are dual-sided and throw fire in chains. Okay. Explain to me why you, as a naval tactician, slash a General Admiral Superman of the Fire Army, would attack an enemy stronghold at the zenith of their power. For prestige points? We, we get to find out later on that uh, former General Iroh couldn't take Ba Sing Se, and he was a fucking brilliant tactician. What hope do you stand? Well, you see, fire is very prideful. This is dumb writing. This is nine-year-olds will eat this up. It's exciting. Uh, we get to portray various uh, Chinese martial art traditions as styles of bending. The animation is occasionally beautiful. The styling is strong. And uh, frequently characters get slimed. For reasons. Also, Appa is adorable. Yeah. And, so- and, and the show just has, has a vendetta against Sokka. Sokka needs to get shit on at every possible opportunity. He gets... He get- Season 3, he finally gets a good episode for himself. Well, already at <laughs> book 2, because the writing kicks in on episode 2. Yes. Uh, when the writing kicks in, we start... Like, he, I could suspect all of this shit happening already, but 
it's the characters are uh, the <clears throat> okay the traveling party of Aang, Katara, Sokka, uh, Momo, and Appa. Yes. That party has uh, a ring, two rings, or at least two sets of socks. Uh, they're stupid socks. Any one episode, at least one of the party is wearing a set of stupid socks. The other one might be in the wash. Hard to say. But characters will wildly change outlook and demeanor episode to episode in book one to a deeply uncomfortable level. I'm distracted from the world building by a character who was holding it down last episode, but they have to be a child in this one. So their ages fluctuate. I know kids have different moods. This is like comprehension levels, which is why I'm convinced that at night, Momo takes off one character's stupid socks and puts them on somebody else. That's the only explanation I have. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, I, I get it. It, it. It's, I never said it was the best, most well-written show, but I, I enjoy it. I like that it does not portray itself anything else besides, hey, this is a show about action and adventure and written for mid-13 to 15-year-olds. But that's not true as of book two. Book two gets better. Book the, two has actual writing involved. And by writing, I mean to say character motivations become sensible yes. as opposed to like basic D D characters you know yeah. i have one motivation oh uncle iroh likes tea and pie show and that is it that is all that is the character zuko has a chip on his shoulder and a fucked up face but now, why does he have a fucked up face doesn't matter doesn't matter we'll tell you why oh his father's really mean these aren't people <laughs> These characters are paper thin <laughs> and highly stylized. Yep. Boomy, Boomy the wacky wackafuckamadu, who is at least 108 years old and is the king regent of uh, I don't know Male Mountain, basically. Uh, what? Ah, uh, <laughs> goddamn it! I can't remember what it's called. Uh, you're making me think now. What the hell is the city? Uh, Mushu, Mashu. Does it matter? Yes. Omashu, Omashu. Yeah. And then you find out later on uh, this tribe and this tribe and uh, the, the the simple moralist lessons with oh no <laughs> monsters it's it's difficult to take because this show is so well beloved I thought to myself if you're just eating this up one episode at a time as kids you're not retaining this fucking shit you just like it when the colorful character with the arrows uses his air scooter ability to dodge a fireball that was awesome don't think about it and then. I begin to appreciate things in book two, which is where we are, where an episode takes its time. It's the secret tunnel episode. Oh, okay. Uh, where the possibility of non-human benders is introduced and explored. Because it is said in the creationist myth that this tribe learned earthbending from the great pig moles. And I turned to my wife and said, oh, so Appa, Appa airbends. It's not a naturally flying buffalo. It's an airbending creature. And she smiled and nodded and said, that's right. And I thought, okay, this... In the future, will they address the part why there are relatively few element-bending animals in the world? Because did people do the people thing and said, oh, we either have to domesticate or fucking kill this thing? Um, they explain in the second series, Legend of Korra, about the first airbender and how air, uh, all the powers became a bee. So you would have to watch the second series to somewhat figure out a little bit of that. But yes, everybody learned from something. But 
See, Star Wars also does this. Not so much in the movies, but the Force is everywhere, and there are plenty of creatures out there in the galaxy that have learned to use the Force in a rudimentary way to help establish either safety or dominance in their environment. So the human, well, I shouldn't say human, uh, sapient race usage of the Force can be cultivated into what is considered to be schools of light and dark Force powers, but that's mostly a construct. Just like gender, haha! Um, but there are creatures that innately use the Force anyway. They don't really think about it. It's just like um, it's like the iron-blooded orphans using the extra artificial organ to just perceive space differently and move all weird to win every fight ever. Because they just have a perceptive organ that says, you can just lift up that rock and hit him with it. You're right. I like doing that. I'll do that. As opposed to, ah, I'm using this maneuver that I've cultivated. Not unlike uh, good old Uncle Iroh saying, I developed this technique where I get to redirect lightning in my body. Out the way. Through my tum-tums. It's got to go uh, into the arm, in through the stomach, and then out the other hand. Don't let it touch your heart! It'll fucking fry you. He's essentially dancing like John Travolta from Saturday Night Fever. Yes. And the show is beloved for many good, charming pieces. But, Chucks, I think you understand why. I have a very difficult time just taking it flatly. People like it, so it's good. Show me why it's good. I give, I award many points to the at-a-glance styling. But the Fire Nation Navy bugs me hardcore. It is inexcusable. <laughs> We have steel ships and catapults. There's a flying buffalo. Everyone, fire your catapults. Oh, it went up into the cloud. Fire them higher. That's what? not how catapults work. <laughs> yeah. That, that's, we need a slingshot. So when it comes... Why, fucking why even a slingshot? Put 20 men on the deck. Have one fuck fireball. Have them all steer the fireball. I don't see the problem. <laughs> That's too, can... too much bending power required, sir. Too, too much bending power required. What was the DBZ character that had the smart spirit bomb? Or the, the smart energy one? Was it Trunks? That's like, oh, I'm going to direct it with my hand, and I'm going to just punch you with this ball of power. Uh, who was that? That wasn't Trunks. Have like... Doesn't matter. Yeah. Point, point being, if you have this proud military college and tradition where... Not all Fire Nation citizens can bend fire, but most of the ones that can are drafted in, and so have this Death core masks. I would imagine that there are group maneuvers. And that's why the hundred years of war make no fucking sense, because they could just take 80 troopers, line them up Mongol style, but instead of raining arrows on the enemy city, just melt it. Just melt it. And you're going to tell me... I actually read a spoiler on IMDb uh, factoids because I was looking for James Hong, and of course he's in the show. I see all these cool things like, oh yeah, in book three, bloodbending. Whoops, spoiler. Yeah, that that's a good but, episode. But that also, that's the problem. Episode. The problem is, book two, it takes all the way to book two to introduce, oh yeah, lightning. Lightning's a derivative of a fire. All these questions and elements start to get involved. Because now, implicitly, the Fire Nation is not discussing the part where they have at least one guy, or one village, or one entire county that are steelbenders. That's how they're shitting out ships so quickly, with their APC vehicles. Nope, steelbending's still uh, part of Earth. Is it? Yep. You find that out later in book two. No, no. <laughs> I, I, I defy that. I defy that because, yes, of course it is. Of course it is. 
but we're just dealing with four primary elements because life is that simple. There are four parts to everything. But as we're beginning to just gently discuss as Uncle Iroh, for the umpteenth time, tries to teach Zuko nuance, but Zuko is 16 and he can't fucking help it, he says, oh, you should probably consider how all the elements work to see what else is possible out there. And it, it messes with the tone of the show, but yeah, if the Earth Nation has steel bending, why is the Fire Nation allowed to thrive the way it is? If every kingdom has access to everything, why is there not a Cold War? Now, we've been at war, but a war... Uh, by, by war, I mean no one's lifted a finger in anger for centuries. But we just have to declare that we are at war, which affects the tariffs on cabbages. <laughs> My speaking cabbages! of which, speaking of which, uh, why isn't that guy a cabbage bender? <laughs> oh. You can you can bend at fucking everything if you can control your chi well enough. I because the show wants to walk on its pace along its paths to get you to places of learning and realization, while teaching about tolerance, teaching about integration, teaching about worldview and perspective and spirituality. I get that, but teaching the these things on a primary basis to children is tough already. By the time they're quasi-adults slash late teens, they're not going to fucking pay attention. No. Not really. Uh, uh, the the cabbage it... bender would be the water bender, by the way. I don't know if you've seen the swamp episode yet. Yeah, no, the swamp episode was great. Yeah, no. That, yeah, so that would, that would be a water bender. Well, because because we have <coughs> we have the, the swamp benders and we have the sand benders. We kind of, we stopped in the first episode of that arc, which Serena said is going to be hard to get through, but we'll get there. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, it will be. It's but sad. Well, because we have to, again, we took the stupid socks off of Sokka and put them on Aang. <laughs> so somebody's wearing a set. Maybe two of them. I don't know. No, no. But, wait, 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 wait. For the, the sandbending episode? Yeah. No, that's not. I don't. Who's the stupid one in that one? No, Sokka's still the stupid one in that one. Okay. But you see my point. That, that yeah. kind of conceit is basically saying I have to put on these glasses to have any kind of a good time here. Because I'm going I'm to keep noticing things. That I'll have to like dismiss as an auto notification. Yep, got it, got it. Yes, okay, I understand. Yes, they're being okay. I get it. Get to the good part. The good part is these four minutes. Outside of that, the episode just does its own thing. Like, um, oh yeah, well, that one time that Sokka ate, ate some cactus water and then was stripping balls for twenty-eight hours, something like that. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's how that works. No. Hey, kids, drugs exist. You're just gonna leave it like that. Just gonna stop there. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I look forward to book two and three. If you want more story, I would then recommend after you get done watching Avatar to watch Legend of Korra. My wife says she doesn't want to watch Legend of Korra. Why? Apparently it's not as good. I'm on the outside here. I haven't done any reading or investigation as to why. I like Avatar more, but you like better story and better writing. So I would say you would like the, Legend of Korra more. Might look into it. They, to me, both are really good shows. I just prefer one over the other. Uh, but with your taste and how you like things, I would recommend that one to you. Um, and it, it, it's going to be... You're going to get more frustrated with how the... Oh, we got to make everybody feel accepted by the... I'll, I'll ruin a bit for you. The main character becomes a lesbian. Uh-huh. And you're just going to be like, that was unnecessary. I found it unnecessary in the show, but hey, guess guess what? They did it anyways. It doesn't deteriorate from the show. You're just like, okay, I guess that's how they're running with this. 
but yeah, the show's still pretty good. I was dimly aware that there was a political decision somewhere along the way, and it, it divided the crowd into allies and people who thought, why, why did you put this in there? Why? Uh, Speaking of Avatar uh, The Last Airbender, though, uh, they're uh, making that uh, a live-action show, and that's been announced like for three years. But they've announced live-action Metal Gear for 20-plus years. It's okay. Yeah. Well, this is uh, Netflix, so Netflix is going to have control of it. So uh, if you like the writing now, just wait, sir. I actually really want to rewatch the Shyamalan film in context now. Oh, because people... Well, again, Chucks, people love Avatar. And they hated the adaptation. It was, it and was bad. I basically don't like 33% of Avatar The Last Airbender at this point. I can deal with it. I'm not enjoying watching it. Um, and people... People despised well, book one, right? Getting through book one took some took some work. It's me being patient, having all these questions, and realizing the writers are not interested in answering those questions. And so, it's been about a year between book one and two, so clearly attention was spent to pivot their focus and their pace. Uh, if you do not like the pace and the writing of book one, you will not like the M. Night Shyamalan movie. But I want to see... I've seen it before once, but I had no context of the animated show. I just know that people revile that film. But I would like to look at it critically, because this is either a focus or translation error, or the script has been passed around multiple times, became a mess, and Shyamalan got saddled with it, and people heard his names attached. They're like, what's the twist, buddy? What's the twist? And Shyamalan's perspective is, I'm not just the twist guy. Do you know that? But now I can't make movies in Hollywood without following this whole model I established, god damn it. So because of that, I'm not on the side of the show. I'm not defending the show because somehow my integrity depends on it. I want to see what happened here, what worked and what didn't work, because, again, I sat through live-action Bebop, and I have kind things to say about the actors and some of the set design and a few moments here and there, but ultimately it was the bad direction that spoiled things. And bad direction is the difference between a well-organized receiving department and mostly a pile of shit and broken forklifts. All the same pieces, but one of them's working much better than the other. Right? And we took the broken pieces of forklift and shit when we worked. Possibly. Yeah, we did. We we, we put in our time. Yeah. So I want to draw attention to Arcane for a second because it's nine episodes of 40-ish minutes each, which equates to about 18 episodes of Avatar which is less than one book. Yes. The writing in Arcane was well-paced and denser than all of book one. And so far, all of book two. And you can have simple, likable, or dislikable characters. Identify what they are about, how they behave, what they do to people around them, and how that works in-world. So I know it's possible. Now I have to ask if book one is for 10-year-olds let's say, and book two of Avatar Last Airbender is for mm, 14-year-olds, maybe 16-year-olds. It's it's holding my attention, but I'm having to translate down to... You could have said this differently, but you work with what you got. Yes. What age do you think is Arcane for? 18, what to, age? 18 to 25. Okay. Well, we're not 18 to 25, so why do we like it? Well, because it's still... We can still connect with those themes and we understand it and good writing's good writing. I mean, it's just like anything that's... Even a good children's book could be entertaining to an adult. 
It might be aimed at somebody else for a young or a younger audience, but because you understand the concepts, it still you could be like that's still good. Do you sincerely believe that eighteen to twenty-fivers understand grief and trauma? Some do, some don't. I, I doubt that. I doubt that in terms of life experience. They're experiencing grief and trauma. They're in the middle of it. They're traumatized, or they're suppressing, or they're running away into work or vices or whatever. I don't think they really understand how things balance out among other people. They're not choosing to engage things empathetically because it's way easier to meme about it and run away. I know this because I've lived this plenty. I'm sure you have as well. You laugh it off like, yeah, it sucks. But then I have to go back to, <clears throat> sorry, the story you told me about the woman with a triangle-shaped hole in her head. Yeah. And then, again, either choose to survive around that idea like, hey, that didn't happen. Oh, that's weird. <laughs> hey, look, this one fell funny. Rather than really process what's happening to this person and everyone adjacent to them and what that means for you and yours. That's an enormous set of feelings and thoughts to process, which I can do okay now because I've spent all the prerequisite hours necessary to crunch through the data and feelings. That's why I'm more sensitive to things because I engage that. Whereas the highly advised tactic for people is to just run the fuck away. Never think about it. Never keep anything, just run. Which is a terrible way to live, but the tactic is there for a reason. Yeah. Hey, Avatar Last Terrapender. That's why it's so fucking insufferable to say, wait, okay, plot, hang on a second. You're telling me that at certain key trigger events, this child can access the sum power of all the prior avatars. Consistent. And yes. be a, a god incarnate, but if you if you trip, fall, and bonk your head, it's over for all of you. Yeah, if you if you uh, what die during the Avatar state, you... but but you're unkillable. You're, no, you're not. Wait till the end of book two. Da, 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 da. No, no. What I'm saying is, <laughs> you're looking at the plot. Yeah, <clears throat> you're at the plot, and you're signposting events without comprehending them, because the world takes no interest in explaining, at least yet, maybe ever, how, why Avatar? Question mark? Balancing force? And if it was invented, which I suspect that it was, it was a cultivation of natural power as focused by a practitioner who is well-versed, like the classic, no, I hate this, uh, Grey Jedi. If you made this happen, why the fuck would you put your most vulnerable state as your all-power state? Because honestly... The easy dodge there, the very easy dodge is the Avatar cannot die. They simply flex into the spiritual realm. If they're, if they're threatened there, they flex back into the material realm. Because that energy can just restore you. You're tapping into creation. You're reality bending. But the show doesn't want to do that. It wants to create stakes. Because that's the response to, so you're just god mode? Well, not quite god mode. Uh... I understand that it's I just don't like that you have to live with these things as partnered with, and then the world was at war for 100 years because Fire Nation. And then one day the Fire Nation attacked. What the fuck? No, uh, you don't figure out, like I said, you don't find out about the first Avatar until you watch Legend of Korra. Book two. You know what that tells me? What? Bad writing. Yeah, they don't, they don't explain anything. You just you find out that the Avatar's been around for centuries, and... Do you, do you want me to spoil how the uh, powers came to be? Not yet. 
not yet. Okay. We'll talk about this all later on. I still want some degree of mystique because I'm trying to calculate which way we're going to pivot oh, in the middle can... of the season, late season, etc. You, you'll you'll be frustrated with how the story ends for Avatar, but you won't find out about anything of uh, in Avatar about how powers came or what did it and all that fun shit. I'm telling you, you got to watch Legend of Korra to understand how the powers came to be in the Avatar state and why the Avatar state the way it is. Well, then the question is, how necessary is that information? Because if you can't tell that piece of the story in your story, you say you have to go consult the codex. How necessary is that context? Sounds like not very. Oh, it sounds not. like that's not that's not the important part. Nope, it's not. So I then, mean, it's just a brief snippet of what's going on in Book Two of Legend of Korra. So you know, it's like, oh, this is why things are the way they are. Because right now, I can't tell you why this kid is important. He's the Avatar. Like, that's why. That's not important. He he f- f- fuck him. What does he matter? He's he a focal point for a religion that's been absent for a century. He's, the world he, he would can, have forgotten. He can, he can master all four, all four elements, sir. Everyone can. No. Every bender. Every person can be a bender. Every bender can master the elements of their capacity. Negative. Katara, Katara had fucking nothing. Until she was taught that, oh, by the way, yeah, you can make a puddle move or also you can collapse a mountain with, with the moisture in the air. You can powder continents. <coughs> right. Oh, I'm sorry. That's too much power. No, 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 no. That doesn't work. It doesn't exist. You can, uh, you can bend steel. It, no, I mean, benders don't have to walk. I don't know if you realize that. That is true. They don't. No, no bender has to walk ever. They choose to. No, they just don't know that they don't have to. Because the the water ones can just have the moisture flex around them and you know ride air or water if they want to. Yep. Uh, earth benders can ride earth. Fire benders can also use thermals to glide. And air benders can use scooters. Yep. So what... <laughs> I guess my question is, why isn't this a story of classism? <laughs> uh, what, is, is that person walking? Oh, fuck them. <laughs> yeah, no, so it, the, the Legend of Korra, that actually happens. Okay. That's a whole okay. story arc in Legend of Korra. That's what I'm saying. Like, a lot of the shit that you're talking about now happens in Legend of Korra. Like, why is this this way? Like, well, hold on a minute here. Classism, you non-bending ass-having motherfuckers. Get out of yeah. here. Like, that that is more interesting if it knows how to have the talk. Because if it's just signposting and walking away, I'm not that interested. It's a whole but fucking it, season, man, dedicated to fucking you non-bending ass having motherfuckers. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna call out that what what should happen is uh, the peasants win. The what? Because the the peasants win. There's more of them, and they have pitchforks and fire. In fact, leave the fire at home and cabbages. Oh, we <laughs> exactly bury them in cabbages. Like, oh, we're the benders. Wait. Where's my food? You don't get any. But how I make food? I don't know. Fucking bend some, I guess. Cocksuckers bend it. How about that? The the proletariat wins. <laughs> don't even. Don't fucking do that. Yeah. Uh, if you if you get any mob of pe- peasants facing the same direction for any amount of time, it's over. Yeah. No, I agree. The, you were about uh, to say. No, no, no. I'm saying like a lot of Avatar was just this. I, I think. I like Avatar because it, it, like I said, it's just a basic story. They they don't try to fluff it up in any great way. They get a little bit of better writing in book two and book three. It's just, hey, here's a story about a boy who can kick some ass. We don't really know the backstory of everything yet. And we really need to develop this more, but we don't have time because we only got three seasons out of this. Boom, here you go. Here's what we got. You You want to hear a simple story? What? A boy saw a wizard once. 
on his name. Jace. <laughs> That's a simple story, and you see where that goes. Yeah. You can you can do great sophisticated writing with simple premises. The problem is this is a this is a funhouse uh, trolley ride for now, and it really wants to look like it has more going on, but for the time being, I'm left with the outlines of a decent experience. Yes, it's artistically compelling. I know it came it came out in the pre HD days, so it's four by three letterbox. Uh, you can tell when the budget's running thin on people because we're saving it for the fluid motion scenes, which are gorgeous. But at this point in my comprehension, I have a very difficult time excusing everything for the sake of spectacle unless I am convinced early on that spectacle is the name of the game, which is why it's mostly easy to watch the middle some of the later Fast and Furious films because there's no mystery about what we're delivering here. This is... This is balls-to-the-wall, happy fun times with a lot of emotional charge and drama that doesn't mean anything. It just connects the big action set pieces together. I want to... As... I don't mean huh? to cut you off here. I'm sorry. And I, I agree with you. I still haven't watched... Uh, I've only watched the first three Fat the Furious films. You're uh, missing out. Yeah. Uh, so I, I've realized... Because you, you assume that future films just repeat more of this. No. No. Uh, anyway, you've go seen on. The, you've seen the new one, correct? The new Fat and the Furious? The newest one I have seen, and clearly, we're we're not really out of gas, but the creative direction is changing. Yeah, um, I, I talked about it in one of one of our Grimecasts actually, where I can tell exactly where the director of the previous ones gave a shit, and where it was given off to the B team. <laughs> um, well, Eddie Phil, I, I I tried. I was like, you know what? I really hate Harry Potter. I don't like Harry Potter. I'm not a Harry Potter fan. But I was like, I'm gonna give the movies a try. Fell asleep within thirty minutes. Of the first film? Of the first film. Well, because the first film is book one of Avatar. It is explicitly a kid's movie. It is. So I was like, all right, all right. I I missed book one. I've seen it before, though. I've I've watched it once because kid's mom. Like, I'm going to watch book two. Guess what happened? Fell asleep. Yeah, I did. But by the time... I'm glad we brought up both Fast and Furious and Harry Potter, even though they don't seem to share DNA. By the time Gary Oldman appears in Harry Potter films... You think to yourself, wait, how do we get here? Yep, book, also, book how many years is Wizard School? What the fuck? Cedric Diggory's dead. What happened there? Why is it, why is everything dark and gray now? What did this get emo? <laughs> Weren't we a winter break a minute ago? Why, why is, is hell the bottom corner like that? Why is there my chemical romance playing in the background? Why are we Why there? is why is Admiral Zhao's uh Jonathan Isaacs is is, is Jason Isaacs. Jason Isaacs. Why is he here in a wig? Also, why didn't we just cast Jason Isaacs as Vicious? In I don't live know. Action? That, that would have been good. Uh, guess what happened, though, when uh, Gary Oldman showed up in book three? Oh, no. What happened? T- no, no. Take a guess at what I did. Fell asleep? Oh, yeah, I did. About 30 minutes in again. I, I didn't make it an hour into any of those movies. I was just like, God damn. Like, I don't know if it's because it's like, yeah, Harry Potter. I would have watched. No, can't. Can't do it. I just, I fall asleep. And I fear that... It may be because of the kid's mom's favorite films, and same with The Fast and the Furious. I'm just going to watch it and be like, meh. And I can't get past it, that. It could be, but what? To walk me through your frame of mind as you're beginning to engage with this piece of narrative storytelling. I was like, you know what? So I gave another show a chance. Uh, it's called Friends. I never liked Friends when the, I was with the kid's mom. It had its moments. And I was like, yeah, it's a mediocre show. 
I started watching it now. I'm on season five. I'm like, you know, this actually isn't a bad show. I'm going to give something else that we used to watch all the time together uh, another chance. And uh, it was Harry Potter. So I'm sitting there. I'm like, I'm going to watch this and see what happens. Um, and it's like, I have to get ready for work, but I've already slept for seven hours. so I don't need to go back to sleep. So it's like one o'clock in the afternoon on Monday. I'm going to watch this. And I put it on. And I get about, like I said, 30 minutes in, 30, 45 minutes in, and I just couldn't do it. Like, it just bored me. Like, this is stupid. Like, yes, this, this kid's a wizard, and his parents died. And his families are pieces of shit. That's great. Snore. Well, let's, let's offer the follow Are you able, do you think, in your mind, to sit down with ample time available to watch Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, and then in your mind say, "I don't know what a Star Wars is. I've never seen one." Or is there just too much background autocompletion for anything to feel new? Um, I'm going to give you a fun fact: the Star Wars films were my favorite films up until I was like 12. So I watched and like that, all three of them like multiple times. That doesn't answer my question. Are you able to sit down and say, I, I've never seen a Star Wars before. I don't know what that is. And then watch the movie on the terms of the movie, not on what you know about it, the franchise, the sequels, the prequels, etc. Are you able to divorce yourself completely from any prior familiarity of the material? Yes, I possibly could. Okay. That might be the only way you could examine Harry Potter, the films, and the spinoffs, if you like, to look at them critically and not saying, and then this happens next. No, 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 no. What is the scene telling you? What are the characters saying? Which way is it pointing? How is this constructed? Because there is momentum here. It puts you to sleep, because at some point your brain switches to, I'm a fucking watching Harry Potter. As opposed to, this is a prepared narrative vehicle. This is a chapter in a thing. And people have recognized this as something enjoyable for many years now. There's something here. What is catching? What is slipping? Why is Harry Potter more popular than the Polar Express? Why is Polar Express more of a meme machine? And uh, it's not just this EG Uncanny Valley shit either. It's because they didn't use the Tokyo Drift song while they were drifting across that ice. Well, again, we're back to memes. So it, it is difficult. Maybe this is the wrong time and mood in your life to try the Potters. I think you would have a better time, since we're comparing the series, with Fast and Furious. And in part, what you know from movie one and two is that it's crimes, car-boosting, races, night culture. Correct. And three, it's foreigner in Japan with crimes, races, and, and car culture. And four is in Brazil, right? No. No. Four is Mexican drug tunnels. Oh, yeah. And Letty comes back. Don't worry about that. Yeah. No. That, that happens. It's two panels on a comic book. Okay, cool. That happens. It's Omni-Man killing the Guardians of the Gal uh, Globe. Yes. Five. Five is Brazil. Okay. That's the one no, where no, I got no. so pissed off because two, a, a Dodge Charger and another vehicle are pulling a 500 fucking ton safe through the goddamn streets of Brazil. You need to find a way to channel those feelings yes. from anger into sheer glee. Yes. Everyone in the room including the cast, understands that this shit is bananas. That's the fun part. If you think, if this is where you get angry, have you been watching the previous films? This is the natural escalation. Six, seven, and eight, I also vouch for, 
because we are just here. I'm going to say this again. You, you might hear me this time. This is the alt-license Avengers films. It is. Why are you not upset at the Avengers for doing dumb shit, bullshit nonsense, where Jeremy Renner has to say in the second compilation film, there's a flying city, I got a bow and arrow, none of this makes sense. And that's like, haha, funny. But then when Dominic Toretto and Agent Hobbs have to do like a bare-knuckle brawl fight in the back of a cargo plane that's on the takeoff ramp that never ends in the night, why are you getting upset? You should be going, I love the fuck out of whatever's happening right here. Uh, Because I know with a comic book movie, it's a comic book movie with a film about heisting and street racing, uh, pulling a 500-ton fucking safe through the streets does make no goddamn sense. So you told me, I mean, you've seen pieces, but you've told me you watched movie one, two, and three of Fast and Furious, Too Fast and Furious, and Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift. Correct. That... This is so stupid to say. That's the first three episodes of Arcane. That story is done. Yeah, got it. Imagine the movie four is a time time skip. <laughs> we are now in a different world with Hextech. Got the cars it. have Hextech. Understood. So what you're saying Stop is Stop just... worrying about how physics works. That shit is gone. We are here to do adventure crimes. All I know is in this new film, uh, he's in space and he's driving a car is what I understand. So I got to see that part at least. You, you can see that part. Um, well, let, let me break it down for you. The characters appearing in Tokyo Drift appear in that sequence as car scientist engineer men. Uh-huh. And they found a way to strap a booster to basically a Volkswagen. And our two token black characters are... Dr- they're flown to near-Earth orbit, basically, edge of the atmosphere, to then rocket their car up to a satellite to perform a critical, crucial hack to help the ground team. And that is extremely farcical, I understand. Had the film been better put together, that would have been a really hype moment. As is, you're just staring at it thinking, well, yeah, I guess they duct taped those helmets down to their pressure suits, so that should that should hold them. Why aren't the, why aren't the windows busting out? It's very Jump the Sharky. Yeah. And, that's because of the, how they handled the sequence, where in the film it is, and because it feels disjointed. John Cena does a great job, honestly. But it's also limited character. The, the, the writing, once again, suffers in film nine, but then it's a miracle that we got this far, as in four, five, six, seven, Hobbs and Shaw, and eight, to now it gets to feel tired to someone like me, who is surprisingly forgiven to the franchise up until this point. Because I'm looking at the dumb shit on screen, and there's a there's an ear to ear grin, and sometimes fist pumps, not because this is all that I'm about, not because this is the base level of entertainment that I enjoy, but because there's great detail and attention being offered to the dumb shit on screen, so that it gets executed. It, it, it's it's like the good version of the Michael Bay Transformers films, which are very flashy, but also very messy, and the nonsense is harder to parse. Whereas here, when you have posturing and and Diesel is folding his arms and making him look, self look really big. And at some point in a ostensibly car heist movie, Dwayne The Rock Johnson is firing a minigun in a helicopter. Dude, this, this shit's bananas. Let's go. Let's do this. This is fun. This is fun because everything matters and nothing matters. If you can let go of that, it's great. I don't think you can do that approach with Harry Potter. 
Um, I guess they could do like night races on wands with neon tracks, but the tone is different. They're not hooligans. They're not thieves. They're just school kids. And then sometimes the school kids grow up, and when they grow up, it gets really mundane. So I guess if you can contextualize, maybe this will help you. Contextualize Harry Potter as a Japanese anime takes place in a school. They're huh. not spells. They're bankai powers. <laughs> All right. Because that might give you the access to go, oh, yeah, like, they got to do their classes, and there's a class rep, and there's after school, they're sneaking out. I mean, like, when an anime takes place in a school, you go, oh, this is familiar ground. I know what's up here. But when it doesn't, they go, wait, what? Why are we following around a mailman? This is lame. Bring me back to the school with the titties and the skirts. Where are the zombies? So with those sensibilities, maybe that cipher will be helpful to you. Because your expectations are placed somewhere else. Maybe. That might help. Uh, I did watch uh, the Bourne films again. Minus the last one that Matt Damon did. So, four of them, then? Three of them. You forget the Renner one. No, no. Yeah, I was in it. That was the one of the three. I did the first two. Bor- uh, Bourne Ultimatum, Bourne Supremacy. Uh, no, Bourne Identity, Bourne Ultimatum, and whatever the hell the Jeremy Renner one is. Yeah, and uh, Pandora Tomorrow. Yeah, uh... <laughs> I, I I swear there are five of them. I haven't looked this up yet, but I might. Okay, uh, fuck it. I'll, I'll start typing. Keep talking. Yeah. Uh, so I uh, I got through the first two with the Matt Damon one, and I was like, ah, this is pretty good. I went to watch the third one with Jeremy Renner, and uh, I fell asleep. That was boring. That was really, yeah. really heavy but, on the exposition and bored the shit out of me. There are five. There are 2002, five? 2004, 2007, 2012, that's, and 2016. That's the Renner one, right? 2012? Uh, yes, that is. The problem, I think, with the Bourne <laughs> films, for me, I see they're competently made, but I get sleepy and detached. If you could take the Bourne films and instead reshoot them as if you're watching The Bureau or Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, like when they were set during the Cold War, I would argue those would be more interesting films. Yeah. That's it, just, yeah, okay, well. No, I would agree, no, I would agree, yeah. Point received, because the books were written in that time period. It's it's, yeah. it's more spy thriller than, uh, I guess, here's the problem. What would you say Jeremy Bourne's personality is? Um, I, said, I said Jeremy Bourne, goddammit. Jason Bourne? <laughs> Jeremy! No, no, Je- I stand by that, Jeremy Bourne. Jeremy Bourne, his, uh, his son, Jeremy. Uh, Jason, Jer- Jeremy Bourne's... Uh, uh, Personality is uh, unknown. Uh, Jason Bournes is calm and collective until shit hits the fan, and then and then and then he becomes highly competent, right? Yep, correct. This is why Space Marine and Master Chief movies are very dangerous propositions, because those characters are written to be hyper competent and basically invulnerable. It's difficult to sell, and they shall know no fear to a film audience, because now you have to make a character not flat. And without getting in their head or having a Jarvis-like tactical monologue that assesses all the dangers, cues up responses, and then they just execute the plan. That very, very difficult. That bad. But when a character emotes, you become engaged because if they're doing the John McClane, yeah, he's a competent cop. He's in over his head. He can probably maybe sort of figure it out and he's going to take damage along the way. That's more engaging. With Bourne, there is a cool factor that, oh, secret kung fu powers. 
But there's a film that I want to watch that I haven't got my hands on yet called Upgrade that might be a more fun version of that. that have you heard of Upgrade? I have. That's like, uh, they said it's, I can't remember that Vin Diesel film. They said it's that, but better. Where he gets, Vin Diesel has micro bots put in him. Bloodshot. <laughs> oh, yeah, they say Upgrade's a better version of that. Even though blood, blood earlier. Yeah, Bloodshot's also a, a comic book that's really good, but Vin Diesel didn't do it credit. Eh, there's always a lot of stories, and actor personality is part of it. Yeah. Uh, speaking of mid-aughts films, I talked my wife into watching Sunshine. On the spotless mind? Different movie. Not the eternal oh, sunshine of the spotless mind, but Sunshine. Sunshine. With Benedict Wong and Killian Murphy and Chris Evans and Kaneda Kaneshiro, what is his name? We find it out. Sunshine came out in 2007. It is a sci-fi thriller, and I like it very much. It has held up better than I expected over all this time. You've never heard of this film? I have not. Really? Okay. Uh, It's a very grim setup. Let me get his name here. Oh, Sanada Hiroyuki. There we go. Proper credit. And Benedict Wong. Excuse me. The the setup you see is visual focal point on one bright dot getting brighter. And a monologue by Killian Murphy that explains that there are 16 months into a space mission to fly a bomb to the sun on a ship called the Icarus 2 and there are no more spare parts to make another bomb. And their plan is to reignite the sun because the sun is guttering out with this. This is the last shot. They lost contact with the Icarus 1 seven years ago. So they're flying off as the last hope into the sun. Now, what do you think are some of the themes of this movie? Um, save humanity? I don't know. I'm not 100% sure. Well, I think that second word you said is, is pretty telling. Humanity. Yeah, in a lot of ways. It is a highly competent sci-fi production. Structurally speaking, it has a few soft spots, but those mostly have little to do with the premise. There is a very important inclusion of a psych officer on board the crew of the eight astro- astronauts. Because you might sound real brave and committed when you're on the surface of the Earth saying, I volunteer as tribute to fly a bomb into the sun to save everyone. But this ain't no hypersleep. This is an over one year long mission on board this ship. And like most NASA missions, considerations of flight duration, fuel reserves, temperature thresholds, oxygen supply, buildup of waste, etc., etc., that's all part of it. The margins are thin. And you, the crew, are less important than the bomb that your ship is strapped to. And your ship is behind an enormous solar shield that has been calculated and configured to withstand heat. But a lot of things have to go right. doesn't take very many things to go wrong for these, these things to get complicated. As you might guess, things get complicated. And there's an enormous psychological element because that bright orange dot keeps getting larger, so much so, in fact, that it begins to blot out everything else. And the human mind was not built for this. Ergo, we've got some people under pressure. Thoroughly worth a rewatch. I know that the the rating is not great, 
60s and 70s for the most part. But also, I, I enjoyed the actors' performances. I think that the casting is pretty solidly done. And when I was younger and watched this movie, I was more in the mood for, I don't know, aliens, guns, explosions, etc. So when I see uh, pre-Captain America Chris Evans posturing in this film, I think to myself, man, what a doucher, what a jock, dumbass piece of shit. And rewatching it very recently, I think to myself, well, I mean, he happens to be athletic, but he's he's an engineer, and he understands exactly how everything needs to work for them to not die and not fuck up. So his rigidity and adherence to a, not a moral code, but their mission objectives, that makes perfect sense to me. I might have chosen differently, but I don't think man would a doucher. Now I have enough empathy and experience and trauma in my life to project myself into this character's head and understand what they're operating on basis-wise and exactly why they're butting heads with somebody else and why that person's perspective also works. Now, you might not enjoy it as much, Chucks, but if you happen to see this one, I'd like to talk to you about it sometime down the road. All right. Mark Strong is in it! Yay! It's it's like a very serious version of Event Horizon. Oh, shit. Speaking of that, I gotta watch that film. I have it on uh, my to-watch list. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sam Neill does a great job. Larry Fishburne. Good to see him here, too. Speaking Event of- Horizon is silly. In a lot of ways. Go ahead, tell me. Speaking of uh, Mr. Fishburne, you uh, you going to watch the new Matrix movie that he's done in? I think I will. I think that my curiosity as to what Lana Wachowski wants to say is sufficient to examine this. Because what if... I've had a couple of examples recently of being positively surprised by things, not a you know, cowboy bebop notwithstanding. But when I get to see quiet brilliance in between all the budgets and the casting all that i mean yeah it's a pleasure to see keanu reeves and carrie on moss it's nice to see them retreading pieces but if lana has lived longer and thought about it more it can channel her trauma into storytelling if this is a story about cycles that somehow recontextualizes all of the events <coughs> of the first of the matrix trilogy as being uh like really sincere and a life or death struggle talking about human nature, the spirit, simulation, presence, purpose, the connections of love and hate, all these things. All of that happened. And that is the 12th time that it's happened. As in, fuck you, cycles. It it couldn't have happened any other way. The architect was right, right all along. That kind of thing. So it's either ultimate hopelessness or one more step of awareness beyond where humanity was previously. And I don't think that the average moviegoer or series enjoyer is going to care about any of that shit, but that is what compels me. That is why I would like to see what they do. Are there going to be stunts? There are going to be stunts. So they look like dog shit? Unknown, but it could work. I'm here for the meta language. I'm here to have a conversation, a delayed conversation, a one-sided conversation with the writers as they play things out on screen. I, w- I want to go back to a series you mentioned earlier, sir, and the stupid shit I like to watch. Uh, have you seen... Well, you don't have HBO... Not HBO. You don't have Disney Plus, do you? I do not. Well, I have been had the privilege of watching the new Hawkeye show. Oh, and, the Hawkeye show with Jeremy Renner. And, What's uh, going on there? Uh, Amy Seinfeld? Sidfield? Sidfield? Seinfeld? I don't know her last name. Or her name at all. Uh, so far it's it's not too bad. Uh, I I've 
it's not great. It's not phenomenal writing. It's uh, like you said, it's a freaking uh, Avengers Marvel show. So I don't expect too much out of it. Uh, but essentially, it follows the plot of uh, oh god damn it, I can't I believe it's Seinfeld. Uh, her character, Kate Bishop, uh, becoming uh, Hawkeye's partner and trying to help with a the tracksuit mafia is trying to take over uh, and steal certain items, and she's there trying to stop it while her new stepfather, uh, she believes, is an evil man. It, it, it's I gotta watch it more. Uh, there's, it's kind of bouncing around. I'm not doing it justice. Oh, but you're also telling me so far, it's not, not that bad. It's not. And that is, that is the death of interest for a TV show for me. Oh yeah. Well, I know with you, you don't like TV Ray? shows. Gone. It's, it's pretty all right. It's, okay. It's, it's, I'm currently backlogged with nine different highly celebrated TV shows. Why would I even waste my time? Oh, but it, but it's Hawkeye and okay. Oh, no, uh, I would well, say I for you, you probably wouldn't like it. Sure. I would. By the way, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to backstep for a second. Uh -huh. The director of Sunshine. Yep. Is Danny Boyle? Really? Danny Boyle directed certain films like Train Spotting. You might have heard of it. Yep. Twenty Eight Days Later. Might have heard of it. Slumdog Millionaire. Might have heard of it. <laughs> One hundred twenty-seven yes. hours and and Steve Jobs. But basically, solid resume. Now, let me do some looking up at this Hawkeye show you speak of. Yeah. Who was involved? Oh, there's a TV series in 1994. Nice. And my question to the world building here. Oh, Jesus, fuck. What? Executive story editor, written by. Head writer, created for television by. Written by. Executive story editor. And then we have six episodes, four episodes, one episode, one episode. So, I mean, it looks messy. Haley's, what is happening in the world Excuse we me. care about uh, about these people? Which people? The characters in the show. Hawkeye and a student. Well, it's not really a student. So, Haley Steinfeld uh, puts on the Ronin suit, which Jeremy Renner's character, Hawkeye... Uh, Clint Barton was in the last Avengers film when after everybody dies and his family disappears. So uh, essentially what happens is is that a underground auction is going on and uh, underworld auction I guess and they have the suit of the Ronin and a sword and a watch and this tracksuit mafia tries stealing it. Haley Seinfeld dresses up as Ronin goes around kicking everybody's ass, and now the tracksuit mafia thinks the Ronin's back, and they're trying to get her, but because Jeremy Renner is in New York at the time, sees that the Ronin's back, and knowing that he was the Ronin, tries to help Haley Seinfeld and get a clearer name, but uh, shenanigans ensue, and shit happens. So we're trying to pacify a criminal element. Yes. After a character because of mistaken assumptions. Correct. Okay. See, that, that's actually reasonably succinct. And that could be made interesting. Now, tell me why I should watch this and not The Sopranos. Watch The Sopranos. <laughs> no, you're <laughs> supposed to convince me. I did. I convinced you to go watch The Sopranos. <laughs> okay. I wanted to offer a comparison to a show that got a lot of attention. And again, I'm focused firmly on the writing that's been established repeatedly over our episodes. The Mandalorian, allegedly, 
is a pretty solid show. Right? Yeah, that's what I hear. We've got a, a, a set of directors that's 10 names long. But interesting enough, uh, series writing credits, uh, it seems that John Favreau is attached to 24 episodes, which I believe is the number of episodes currently aired. Yeah? Two seasons? Yeah, something like that. Okay. And then the writing <laughs> variation story, teleplay, and written by, there's only like eight episodes that have other people more solidly leaning on what should happen in that episode. The directors change, but there's a consistent written tone to the show. If you take it by half, still, the spread is very low. The focus is established. Whereas in only nine episodes of Hawkeye, there's three directors, three episodes each, and way more writing credits, which reads as messy to me. I could check the other uh, Disney shows as well. I hear good things about WandaVision, but again, I've heard enough discussion about WandaVision where it would be curious, not for the characters, but for the interactions. And those interactions are better addressed than other things, not the least of which is Disco Elysium. So it's I, I'm difficult to please. You can't say, look, 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 purple bow guy. That's that's not enough, man. Not anymore. I'm not I'm not 14 anymore. Oh, no, I, had, I had a difficult time enjoying The Office, and The Office is supposed to be a DC Zero check. You're supposed to watch The Office and go, oh, it's so great! And then people will tell you, yeah, you know, they had a little bit of money for season one, and the jokes were okay, then they got better later. Again, I can offer that qualification, but you also... It's the equivalent of me saying, Chucks, watch all of Fast and Furious. That's not what I do. I tell you that there is a span of films that in the middle gets quite good if you can engage yourself in the fun factor and throw away everything extraneous. Hmm. But that's the qualification I offer. It's pretty simple. It's pretty accessible. But people don't do that. Oh, sorry. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll say the word uh, Band of Brothers and you'll pop up and say, oh my god, great show, all the way through. It's a pretty good show. It has its moments where it has its lulls, but it's still a great show to me. Based on the fact that it's a 20-year-old show and the runtime is 10 hours, if that's 10 episodes, or even 20 episodes, half an hour each, that, that's finite. Show started, show happened, show finished. Correct. I'm going to guess that show did not finish because the quality was uh, going down and they canceled it. Pretty sure they didn't cancel it. Is that accurate? What, Band of Brothers? Yeah. Correct. It was a miniseries, just like the Pacific. Oh, weird. So it's like they they figured out their story, and they ran for exactly as long as they needed to to tell that story. Correct. That sounds good. I like that. Yeah. I just have a very hard time uh, just accepting it. Watch the show. Is it finished? Well, no, but watch it. So it doesn't know what it's doing yet. Nope. It can pivot based on audience perception. And that means we're going to do pandering and trying to squeeze out the most we can. Fellas, I've seen me enough garbage to know where this is going. Not interested. People say, oh, Narcos is a great show. Okay, well, let's look at Narcos. Uh, where are you in the list? I saw you pretty high up there. This person is number four, 50-minute episodes. It's over. It's uh, spanned two years. That's not too scary. Let's no. take a look here. 
look at the writers, all cast and crew. Directed by uh, an array of writers. But, once again, the writing credits. Consistently, two names show up for 30 episodes. 30 episodes, that's manageable. That, sh- that series is done. And then executive story editors, yada, 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 12, 11 episodes, and some guests here and there. But again, core supervision is suggested to be one set of controlling people. And in this case, unlike with uh, Mandalorian, John Favreau wrote, created, and directed a bunch of it. Not all of it, some of it. The series is written by, chiefly, Carlo Bernard and Chris Brancato, as well as Doug Miro. None of those writers did any directing. They wrote, established, and then gave this work for the directors to work on. Suggesting again that they knew what their strengths were, they knew they were not directors, but they wrote it as a body of work, and then gave it to people who translated that into something filmable, and then gave it to the directors who then filmed it. That boosts my confidence in that show's capacity, because it it ran for 30 episodes and then it was done. If that's three seasons, so be it, but they didn't keep pushing it. Whereas Lost ran for six years. And it, from what I remember, people did not enjoy the ending. No, no one. I don't. Everybody I know never enjoyed the uh, ending of Lost. It was really confusing and silly. Confusing and silly. Well, there you go. And that's why. Call me picky if you want, <coughs> but I don't feel compelled to be marketed to to say you'll really, really like this. And when I get there, I don't really, really like it. Uh, ask back and say, wait, what was special about this? The guy says, can't hear you, counting money, next thing. Yeah, that, that's that's why everything I've said that I've talked to you about, I've been kind of honest with you, been like, no, you probably won't like this, but... And I appreciate it, but then when I press you to say, tell me about the show, you go, um... Uh, it's a positive example of representation. Exactly. Hold on. I just, I, I, I would like for you as we always do, this is a consistent process between you and me. Yep. I speak critically about things, and I want you to pay attention to some of the things that I say and focus on, and express them in a fashion you can to address those same points in your way. Because it fucking kills me when you say, after watching 97 episodes, that's pretty good. Well, I die inside. <laughs> what, what series have I watched that has 97 episodes that I would just say, that's eh, pretty good? Well... Black Clover was a recent example. It's a consistent example. It's it's an okay show. And then you say, "Excuse me, sir. There are 126." Well, fucking that doesn't exactly challenge my point. That just leans in harder. Oh yeah, no, I haven't watched it since episode 81, and it's about episode 100 something now. I don't really know what happens, and it, it has ended. Uh, I stopped watching it at episode 80. First twenty didn't do it, huh? No, uh, I am on episode like 125 of uh, My Hero Academia. And I, I hear less. I hear less griping about that show. The constant release of standalone films suggests that the public is quite fond of that show. It it does, and the the show is a very simple concept of boy gets powers because he has done. Uh, people can become super powered because they're born that way. Um, he, he is going to school to become a hero and supervillains are attacking to try to destroy the world. And every so often he has to help with his superpowers and his former uh, mentor along with his classmates to stop these villains. 
and hijinks ensue for five seasons. It's, I would like to put it out. Yep. Little touches. Because when you have powers in shows, yep. it's a variety of powers. Like the, JoJo is getting a huge push right now on Netflix because they released a new season. Season or five. New, uh, from what I understand, I, I watched all the way through part three. I did not watch Steel Ball Run. Uh, not going to watch Stone Ocean for a while. Steel Ball Run, yeah, they didn't do a anime series of Steel Ball Run. Oh, well, the Stardust Crusaders and uh, Diamond is Forever? Whichever. Di- doesn't matter that much. Point being, the previous part, they divided into two parts, I guess, and that was too long. The newest part, apparently, is a breakneck pace, so they're summarizing the manga, just crunching into episodes. It's a riot of color and, and just shit happening on screen. And that has an audience, absolutely, but what you're doing the stretching of adaptation between reading volume by volume to we've got this much to cover, we've got funding for this many episodes, start pushing it in. Cool. Okay. But when you have power variety shows, for the most part, you're there for the artificial complexity. You're there for how is this going to trigger off of that? It's, it gives me the passive satisfaction of playing Magic well, or Star Realms well. But I'm not directing any of the combinations, the procs, the triggers, the reactions, the plotting. I'm just watching it play out. And then basically having a chance to go, oh, that was clever. Or, oh, that was bullshit. It's less enjoyable for me. But if you're talking about special powers and gifts, uh, my unconfirmed autistic ass really enjoys moments that are perceived as stupid or nonsensible in other shows that translate well to me, thus showing my bias stick. For example, that wonderful moment in Mobile Suit Gundam Iron-Blooded Orphans Season 1 where the main character, Mikazaki, is repeatedly offered the use of an edged weapon. And he goes, ah, not my thing. I don't understand it. I-, I can't use it. And then when he uh, gets the properly intense surge of war drugs into his system in a pivotal fight at the end of the season, he is able to apply a sword weapon to devastating effect to get an advantage over his opponent. And he says something like, I can't believe it. It was so easy. It was there the whole time. Now I understand. I would imagine most audience members would say something like, dude, it's a sword. You cut shit with it. Like, what's the problem? Why was this a mystery to you? But I thoroughly empathize with the character because I, it was not made apparent to me just how magical the combination of garlic, butter, rosemary, and steak can be. Oh, yes. Because, because I can't connect those ingredients to the meal on the plate. I don't understand that journey. And when somebody lovingly told me that the secret is to tip the pan and spoon vigorously to condition the meat, that was the click. That was the idea behind that method. And again, it sounds so obvious. But when I point, want to point back to it with Mobile Suit Gundam, Our Blooded Orphans, with the Kazuki August, he was having zero difficulty tearing things apart and crushing them to death. Now you taught him how swords work. I will be very cautious about this development from a character <laughs> who pushes all of their available tools to the breaking point and beyond to achieve effects that far exceed what you might expect. So I can apply the butter-garlic technique to anything, but now I'm going to apply it to petite Kobe cuts loaves. So that meat is going to be devastating to the point of eclipsing pretty much anything else you might throw at me. 
You might even say, oh man, you got to get the, the, the ribeye and then I'll serve you what I made. And you just, you start to cry because you realize I can't make anything better now. This is, this, this makes me feel bad about my abilities. All I could do now is retreat to the smoker and God, I hope he doesn't figure out how a smoker works. Which yeah, is the signpost that the part where a character can do a magic quirk in Hero Academia, to me, is significantly less interesting than a character who is proven to be has a knack at a thing and does thing very well, and then is either artificially or accidentally kept away from other things because their surrounding people might know. We just can't afford to have them find out. It will it will break everything if they get to do this. Hmm. I don't know if that I don't know if that translates to you, but to my ass, that just makes the most sense. Sorry, I had to uh, turn my mic off for a second. It's coughing. Um, no, it does. It translates. Uh, I, I I don't enjoy my hero for the quirks, the quirks, as they're called, the quirks, as Valve said. Um, I just like the stupid story. It's just some simple entertainment to me, just like most things. If it's simple, easy, uh, basic story. Uh, this last season was very short in my eyes. I didn't feel like it went through 20 episodes. It was just like... Too many plot points jumped around, but uh, to me, the the show, like I said, it's just an easy, silly mention. It, it reminds me of Dragon Ball Z. I don't go into Dragon Ball Z because of plot detail. I go into Dragon Ball Z for the action. And I that, mean, the plot details are there, and the action's mostly metaphorical despite being devastating, but I, I see what you mean. You don't have yeah. to read into it. Correct. It's just there. But you can, and if you want to go looking, there's more there. Yes, I, I do not try to do that with those type of shows. The the only shows like uh, there are a few animes that I'll do that with, like uh, Toradora. I did that with that was pretty good. Uh, a, a shape of voice. I was more worried about what happened because it was story driven compared to like action driven. Like Dragon Ball Z and My Hero are the Michael Bay films of the anime world. Action explosions and let's hope it works. I wouldn't even say that. They're more Jerry Bruckheimer films. No, yeah, Mike. M Mike's got a difficult time stringing anything together between explosions and set pieces, other than memes, because he's very, very, very good at filming things in a sexy, slick style and framing and centering explosions. We laugh. It is fucking difficult to film explosions. It's hard. Oh no, it is. People. He does it so well, it seems effortless, and we laugh about it. Whereas somebody else might say. See that fireball? That's three quarter million dollars sitting right there. <laughs> Filmed by three million dollars worth of cameras, and it's gonna make us a billion dollars. That's how good this fucker is. But Mikey struggles heavily at portraying people because in his mind it comes across just different. He's at his most sincere when he's producing films like uh Pain and Gain. That's him being honest with the crowd about how he feels about the crowd, and the crowd still laughs. Whereas Jerry Bruckheimer or even, yeah, even Roland Emmerich understands people a little bit better. His character beats are more intriguing to follow around and between the action. If that makes any kind of sense to you. It does. Like um, The Day After Tomorrow or 2012. The Day Before the Day uh, After Tomorrow? Yeah, that one. 10,000 BC. Yeah. As opposed to films like, um, well, The Rock was more Michael Bay, but uh, if we look at... <laughs> Con Air or the Pirates trilogy, Pirates of the Caribbean. Who the characters it? themselves are more enjoyable 
and you wanted to spend time with them in between the cannonballs. Yeah. And the sword swashbuckling. Uh, are they rebooting those films? I would believe if you said yes, but it's it's hard to tell anymore. Yeah, is it a reboot or is it a... If they do, I would have a difficult time being excited about them as they currently stand. It is surprising to me that I actually watched the Netflix, Bebop, and Arcane in a timely fashion when they were fresh. Because the last time that's happened is by accident with Bo Burnham inside. Usually, I will open a browsing service like Netflix, and it will try to push something at me, and I'll briefly glance at it before clicking away. To the point where I see, oh, yeah, it's Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh, he's in a movie doing a British thing. Okay, um, when did it release? This year? Okay, put it at the bottom of the list. I just, <laughs> I, I, losing trust with recent releases. Now, of course, I'll make exceptions for people that I know on the creative end of things. For example, Denis Villeneuve's Dune, in parentheses, part one. I caught that fresh. I caught that immediately. I have not I watched that yet. Then we can't talk about it. I was going to but, watch it on HBO Max and never did. Yeah, I remember our conversation. If and when you do, uh, point number one, it's part one. And point number two, we'll discuss it. Okay. And I'm sorry, you won't get to have the overwhelming audio experience that the theater offers. But that's something I'm going into knowing the pedigree of who's making it. I don't think I'll get to catch the next uh, Wes Anderson film in theaters. Most likely I won't be able to, but I'd like to watch that at some point because I know the dude. I know what he does. I kind of know the tone. If you get a Fincher or Tarantino, I've said this before, you got me. I want to see what they did because I know the filmmakers and where they might be going. But if it's largely unproven and it's being driven by actors, I am less interested in just going for the actor. Or if it's an ensemble film, like, we got big names. What was the recent one? Uh, Red Notice. That was yes. a big push. Netflix did. Yep. And there's three people you know. Ha ha. All three of them are in the MCU. Somehow. But The Rock's not in the MCU. What's that? The Rock's not in the MCU. Neither well, is Gal Gadot. I'm sure he's in there somewhere. My point being, three faces you know. And from what I understand, that film is mostly a tequila commercial. Uh, I have not seen it, nor can I comment on it, so uh, I will let you know when I watch it what it's about. But that's part of the point. It's <sighs> There's no way I can say this not sound like a leader or some shit, but there's nothing to latch on to think about outside of uh, what the characters maybe were meant to be written as, or if they just have one operating phrase, they just point back to that. What would the character do? Look back at the phrase. Oh, they'll do that. And... I don't really like turn off mind entertainment. I, I don't like it. Even with something as silly as the cars jumping across buildings in Fast and Furious, it's not turn off mind entertainment because now you're looking at the stunts, at the flow, at the next piece of adventure coming at you. But if it's saturation of action, it's there just for action's sake. Like, yeah, these guys with guns got to breach this room and our characters will find a gun and fire back and run. Glass will shatter, some things will catch on fire. They'll make a death-defying jump. And they'll get away and quip about it in a stolen vehicle. Or a new ally will show up. It's perfunctory. Is it fun to watch? Yeah, the first 20 times. That's the problem. I've been raised on a lot of action movies. So if I see it done really well, a la, say, Baby Driver, you have my attention. But I'm looking at the craftsman arranging pieces. If it's done on a good enough basis, 
burn through the money anyway, yeah, I'm going to have a tough time. I might start yawning or reaching for my phone, and that's always a bad sign. Huh. Okay. Well. Well, well because then my, my hands are empty. I'm not doing anything. I'm calling the scenes before they happen. It it looks entirely performative. I mean, someone's got to do middle stuff. Christian Slater films exist for a reason. But there's no hook. Like, if we bring up Christian Slater as an example of something else tangentially, because he's in a movie with two far more recognizable faces, those being Kurt Russell and... Um, <clears throat> damn. How could I forget his name? Waterworld Man. Kevin Costner? Costner. There you go. I know his name, it just slipped my mind because it, it got stuck in the middle. Yeah, that's uh, 3,000 miles to Greaseland. That is a favorite trashy movie of mine. It's not a good movie, but damn, it's got some nests in there. It is messy. It is foul. It is juvenile. Um, the 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 girl from Friends shows up. The brunette one. Um, Courtney Cox or Jennifer Aniston? Yeah, 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 Courtney Cox. Mm. It just it, it's silly. It is stupid, and I enjoy it because the people who made this film. Either it got changed in the editing process to be lighter-hearted than it really was, or they knew it was a joke the entire time. The premise of the movie is that one of the lead criminals in this movie, portrayed by Costner, sincerely believes to be Elvis Presley's illegitimate son. And as such, he believes that he can just act any way he wants to, while being a thoroughly unhinged figure himself. That's one of the pillars of the movie. Whereas, uh, Damn, son, must be getting tired or something. Not Costner. Uh, Stuntman Mike. <laughs> Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell. Let me pull up the movie so I have the <laughs> reference list of these names. Kurt Russell just wants to get paid and leave. Cross the country with the money. Simple, ambitious plan. I'm going to pull this up here. Uh, 3,000 miles to Graceland. <laughs> that is a 2001 movie. Also 20 years old. It's like they are slowly unlearning how to make films because the trash is not as good and the, the best ones are also not as good uh this man where's his face not ice t ice t's in the film by the way he he does a big action thing does he uh bokeem woodbine is a man that you know his face yep but he's never the draw he, he's someone that puts in a solid performance no matter where he is but he has a classy line from that movie. Hey, what was the smartest thing ever to come out of bitch's mouth? Einstein's cock. <laughs> that's the level of humor we're working with here, folks. You got it. And I'm okay with it. I mean, that's... This should be a stupid, dumb-nothing movie that I'm paying attention to because there's craft in there. So yes, boiling it all down, browbeat is hard, difficult to please. Nah, it's all good. It is good. I I just I continue to find and deliver good shit. If I bring you something, the worst mistake you can make is think, oh, this is like one of those like turn your brain off and do whatever things. No, I've thought about it. I've thought about you. I brought you this thing. Enjoy this by yourself or together. We could do it together as well. And Joaquin's been in a lot of shit. I didn't realize he shows up. Really. Let's see what I mean, that, 
between two th- no, excuse me, nineteen ninety three all the way to now. He's working now. He's gonna be in a uh a Halo thing here shortly. It's in Ghostbusters Afterlife. Soren 066. He's gonna be a Spartan, yo. Which really begs oh. the question, um, if the Halo story continues, why are we still making Spartans? Is it because the secrets of Oni never made it themselves public? So we just continue to pretend, yeah, these are um these are public defenders. These are space warriors against the aliens. Absolutely not the Capitol Police to suppress uprisings. No, 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 no. As far as new stuff, I mean, the closest I got, can't talk about Dune, talked about the Animus. Uh, I went through Bloodborne, Dark Souls 1, and I'm still within Dark Souls 2. You have no context with those games, I think? I do not. I have never played any of the Dark Souls games. Okay. Uh, I, I haven't going... been... Go ahead. I haven't been playing much video games recently. Well, yeah, your life has been a little more focused on other things. Yeah. Bloodborne, it deserves all the love it has given. We would like to have a PC port sometime, please. Thank you. Never. Uh, it is perhaps I haven't touched Dark Souls 3 yet, but that's on the on the queue. It feels to me that Bloodborne is actually the true sequel to Dark Souls in terms of level design, sensibilities, enemy action and interaction, weapon crafting, <laughs> Fashion souls, gotta have fashion souls, and story inscrutability. And I say this because Dark Souls One, I, I I believe I did talk about this on the show. It felt stiffer, very very stiff in comparison to interact with your character against the world because Bloodborne just has more float, the good kind of float, smoothness built into itself. Uh, going from the level design and the interconnection of all the areas, because let me try to picture this picture, Chucks. You have your main early hub in Dark Souls 1, where you're you're plonked into the world and you're told, go ring a bell or two. Typically, the direction you take is the one that's straight ahead of you, which is a narrow cliff path towards a big aqueduct. And that'll lead you to the first proper area. If you're very curious, a little to the left of that path are some ruins, and those ruins might lead to a small graveyard, and the graveyard's going to plunge you deep underground to the catacombs, where the skeletons live. And they're a big problem for you early on, but if you want to, you can go down there and find another area that's going to lead off onto its own path. And then, of course, the outcropping where you find yourself is at the top of a cliff with a narrow path that leads down to an elevator into the cliff. And then if you go down that elevator, this is the third major area you can go to, it's going to drop you off somewhere underground called the New Londo Ruins, which looks pretty miserable and evil. But if you happen to have something called a Master Key when you're starting the game, in that new place that you just unlocked, there's a little tower with a door, and you open that door, that door lets you out to a place called Valley of the Drakes. So now you've been walking for less than five minutes, there's another area. And the Valley of the Drakes also connects to two more areas. And eventually, when you're strong enough to weave your way past or fight your way through the trouble, you can just navigate a honeycomb of this world. I mean, it's not extreme, but it's pretty involved. And you may not always want to go to these places, but they kind of make sense relative to each other where they are in the world. 
And oftentimes, if you're somewhere high up, you can look over and see another feature in the distance, and you, there might be a way from here to there. And this is back in, this is more than 10 years ago. This is really good design. Bloodborne has something similar, but it's focusing on being more streamlined. So now I get to bitch about Dark Souls 2. Dark Souls 2 was handled by not the lead team. It was handled by people who misunderstood what the mission objective was. It was first restricted to 30 frames per second, meaning when it runs smoothly now, the world gets all fucky, including broken animations, and weapons that take double degradation damage from touching anything. Because, of course, they hit more frames in the world, meaning your stuff breaks frequently, sometimes mid-boss fight. You gain many more levels, because they thought that gaining levels is what you need to do. And of course, if you're good at the games, you can avoid most of the trouble, most of the combat, run through everything, and just smack the bosses down uh, with the OP weapons. But I was just having this really difficult time coming across enemies that would jankly hit me when I'm trying to evade, and refuse to go down when I thought that they ought to. And on top of this, this is the only Souls game that I know of, where there is a limited spawn amount of enemies in the world. After 12 to 15 times that you've laid them low, they just stop appearing. So you can theoretically clear cat areas and just take all the bosses, oh, not the bosses, but them too. Just destroy the enemies over and over. Just repeat the area 15 times, and now it's clear. Which is no fucking fun. But I had to do that early on to soak up all the experience I could to boost up my stats, so I was having a less miserable time because death was significantly more frequent. And as was stated in multiple interviews, the creator of the series said, difficulty is not the key objective. It's not for it to be hard and miserable. It's for other things, themes, and mechanics. But that this team didn't get that message. So after an inordinate amount of grinding and finding one spot in the game that defies that rule, at least natively, that the enemies don't run out, and optimizing a strategy to get X amount of souls per minute, I finally hit a point where the numbers are pretty much as good as you're going to get. I'm wearing very heavy clothes, and I'm swinging around Berserk-style oversized weapons, which looks very silly. And now I'm able to very calmly explore the parts of the world I haven't seen yet, to the point where I'm entering new areas, sweeping through them with sufficient supplies, you know, falling down here and there, maybe getting tripped up. But when I came to a place called the Dragon Airy, you know what they have with the Dragon Airy? Dragons. Really? And then I walk in, and it's a boss fight. It's my first time fighting that boss. <clears throat> and I jog over to its feet. I just pound its feet till it dies for less than a minute. I feel a little bit cheated, but then I remind myself that I'm not having any fun playing this game. <laughs> so, whatever gets it finished smoothest is bad for me. I mean, good for me, bad for the game. There are certain experiences that I just don't really get to feel threatened by anymore because I've put in the hours to, to do them. There's still even a, um, an optional boss I can fight that basically, with my numbers, is still not beatable because they jacked up their stats really, really, really high. You're not supposed to fight them, but you can, and if you do, you get something that's barely a reward. So I might leave that alone. They even did a three-piece DLC campaign of three different kingdoms and castles for you to explore. And those were fun to explore. But at one point, I shit you not, I was stuck in a position where I have to fight my way down to a series of crypts into narrow corridors with enemies that I can't hit. They're ghosts. Shit. 
but they're not fully ghosts. They still have body boxes. So they can box me into a deadway passage in this new place that I'm still exploring and just fuck me to death. Nothing can do about it. That's fun. And I know from a prior example, what I need to do is find the one chamber where the sarcophagus that hosts their physical form that I then destroy so I can hurt them. But that's no fun. There's just a high-pressure area. You can run through it, but then they all chase you to the same room. So I hope you like enjoy, enjoy dodging seven different sabers. And it just it feels like it's mean design without the breathing room of previous options because they were definitely thunderfuck scary areas in both Bloodborne and Dark Souls. But they felt just fair enough. This felt creatively unfair. But I did manage to find a few things that are delightful, if useless. As an example, fist weapons are pretty rare in Dark Souls. Usually it's swords, or spears, or clubs, or axes. But every now and then, you can find punching gloves. And they, they, they punch. You take a big hook swing, that's the animation, maybe an uppercut. I found a rare weapon called a bone fist. What I was not prepared for is the movement set, because the movement set is basically Ryu from Street Fighter full of uh, everything shy of a spirit fireball. We've got ground sweeps, we've got flying kicks, we've got spinning uppercuts. <laughs> it's not very useful, but it's very stylish, and I do appreciate that. It was a good giggle to say, oh yeah, you put an Easter egg in here. In addition, there's this thing that happens with newer D&D players, or younger D&D players. This happened to me, happens more often than you think. We get this idea of, hmm, what if you had a fighter who fought with two shields? You ever thought about that? No. That's because you're normal. But the idea is that it doesn't do very much, but you could hypothetically do it. Like, you're super defensive, but you can crush and punch people with shields. Well, lo and behold, in Dark Souls 2, there is a place where you could defeat several enemies and they might drop what turns out to be matching shields. You can use them in your shield hand by themselves. It's a big, thick slab, almost like a chocolate bar, but made of obsidian. And as an engraving, and the text describing those shields describes them as being wielded by two different brothers who fought together. And on its own, it behaves like a shield does. You block with it, you might smash with it a little bit, but it's not an effective weapon. I thought to myself, what if I, put, if I put one of them in my left hand, one of them in my right hand, what happens? It looks nice, because they're supposed to be a matched set. But Dark Souls 2 has a hidden mechanic that few people know about. I mean, if you know, you know. It's called power stancing. Certain weapons are compatible with one another for dual wielding. If you engage the power stance, you get a cool new moveset for your offhand weapon. Your main one does the same thing, but your, your off-weapon actually gains ability versus becoming weaker. And Shucks, these two shields, they have matching notches on the facings that face each other. Meaning, you can now chew your food. You can attack enemies by bringing the two shields together in the middle. Smashy smashy. Huh. Is this effective? A little bit, but you're basically having to run at someone and going blam, blam, blam with two halves of a very large box. But it's cool as shit. 
it's it's a pleasure to see this pay off at least in a novelty way than anything truly useful because it doesn't really matter what you're holding the answer in this game for maximized damage for melee weapons is enchant the weapon with something elemental and then go to town but just to have the brief possibility of a dude who fights with two halves of a super shield and then brings them together offensively okay there's the juvenile payoff you did it dual shielders done please never again I, I enjoyed that for a brief respite. Now back to the misery of, okay, cross this room. Fought the boss. What do I do now? Light the torches. Fight more enemies. Now what? Got to the door. Door's locked. Need a different item. Open the wiki. Where's this item? Oh, it's in the side passage two areas ago. Go to get the item. Open the door. Now what? Boss. Crush the boss. Now what? As opposed to truly being curious about the mystery of what, where I'll travel next. Uh, that's a pretty big would not recommend for Dark Souls 2. <laughs> Maybe a watch through, but you won't enjoy touching this thing. Pretty eager for Dark Souls 3. Eager to be done. But I won't put it down and say I'm walking away. Let me at least finish this. I've put in too many hours to walk away now. <laughs> Which is, of course, the fallacy that all MMO players have. That, uh, like me with Resident Evil. Kind of. Yeah. I mean... Wish it weren't that way, but here we are. Yeah, like, you know, I, I probably shouldn't be doing this, but I am anyways. Well, sir. All right, fella. Yeah. When are we doing this next? Uh, I got tomorrow. And I got Sunday. In the oh, you mean to say that the listeners will hear tomorrow a week from now? Uh, no, uh, they'll hear tomorrow. Yes, from a week from now. Yes, yes, we'll go with that. Time flows strangely on the Grimecast. It does. It flows very strangely. Um, but yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll be hearing from us soon. Uh, uh, I'm terribly sorry that I've been gone for a bit. I had some family issues, so that's where I've been and why we haven't recorded much. Uh, but with that, I, I promise we'll be back on a regular schedule here, I hope. Well, as once. close to regular as we can manage, meaning sporadic at best. Yes, as close as we can manage, uh... Uh, I like I said, family, family stuff, family stuff has come up. Family stuff has come up, so I, uh, I had to take care of that for the past month and a half. So, uh, but with that, we'll we'll be as regular as we can. But they'll they'll be hearing from us a lot. Uh, I guess this will be start of season two of the Grimecast. Uh, twelve yeah. twelve episode season of episode uh, season one. Uh, season two point two two. You cannot schedule. Yes. Um. But with that, guys, yeah, for Grimin' Game, I've been Nutchucks. I've been Browbeat. We'll talk to you guys next time. And don't forget to catch us on Spotify, YouTube, and uh, wherever you get your podcast at. See you guys.